This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. It's Wednesday. Oh, it is Wednesday. Oh, I thought yesterday, I thought today, yesterday was Monday. No. Today's Tuesday. So you're saying today's Wednesday. Yeah. So I just missed yesterday? Just completely. No, oh, I, you just you just I got that a, was Monday. You just got a bonus day right there. Bonus day. Hey, good to be with you. This is a uh it's a new year, folks. Life is good. Do you know what year it is? Twenty fourteen? Seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Yeah. <sighs> I better get on this. Yeah, don't forget because the first time you write a check. Or turn in some kind of an assignment to somebody. Write a check? I haven't written a check for years. Turn in an assignment? What are we? High school kids? I missed you guys. Oh, we've got so much to talk about. The new year. Hmm. Uh, We can get into our New Year's resolutions. I think that would be a really neat thing to find out what your New Year's resolutions are. Mine, of course, working out. Talked about it yesterday. Yeah, where were you? Oh, it was Monday. Yesterday I was watching bowl games. Oh, I see. There There was no bowl games yesterday. Yeah, it's kind of boring. Yeah, it's boring when there's no more football. Yeah, it's that, that's kind of the good and the bad of New Year's. Is it's like you get this huge Tons rush of football. college football, and then it's just gone. Yeah. Then and what then, is the ugly of New Year? Well, the New Year. Well, oh. I was telling my wife, everyone takes all the lights down, all the decorations just disappear, and what are you left with? Smog. Smog, and around here you get snow that turns black and dirty real quick because yeah. the plow key comes comes by and kicks up all the mud. And there's something about kind of turns gray and dingy. Uh, there's something about the new year that's just crazy. I um I did a speech yesterday to about 400 construction workers, mm. and I thought we wouldn't did you get have a hat. It. No, come on, we didn't get a hat. But I thought it would be snowed out because it was snowing so hard here. But no, these guys they got to get to the site, so they all got. They all drove 100 miles to get there. They're big trucks. Yeah, they actually did have big trucks. Um, what do you think? This is a, it's a crazy day, and apparently technology is taking over everything. That's the story. And so we will be talking, should there be a universal income, a basic income for all human beings? Because when technology takes over, apparently there will be nothing left to do. That's what people kind of... I guess I, I, it's it, they extrapolate out to the future. If this continues in the same course, which of course nothing ever continues no. in the same course, no. But they come up with this sort of uh, it's like an economist dream of what we can do to take care of everyone if robots so basically take universal everything. basic income. Yeah. When robots take over, you're just going to get an income from your country, and you just your government. You're just going to sit home and. Now, we I heard about this with the television. the carrier plant in Indiana mm-hmm. that President, President-elect Trump went in and got some jobs and all that, you know, that story. hundreds of jobs. Well, the, the story was the next day the CEO was on uh, uh, CNBC and he's like, yeah, we're going to automate the plant. It'll be great. Yeah. And so they saved a bunch of jobs, but then they're going to cut a bunch of jobs because they're going to automate the whole and system. And this is what we got to find out because we're bringing on an expert that can talk about it. Because the expert says that never really happens. When you automate, all you do, you, you still have people running the – you just run more. So right. where you used to make 100 cars in eight hours, now you can make 200 cars yeah. in eight hours. But you're going to employ everybody 24-7. Someone has to maintain the robots. Yeah. It's not like we ever cut back. Yeah. We just Would, keep making more. Wouldn't you tune in to robot talk radio though? Oh, for sure. 
It would be fantastic. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, they'd fix it so that the voice sounded real. Oh, I hope it doesn't sound like that. That anyway, we won't even go there. See the self control I've created over the new. That's year? great. Um, Good job. So we will be talking about universal basic income. It is happening in Finland. Finland is now giving two thousand citizens a guaranteed income. Hmm. You can still go make more money if you want. We will guarantee you an income of this much. Right. To kind of test it. So we'll get to that fun as well as maybe um, – I want to talk about push-ups for a minute in a minute because Jeff and I have the same New Year's resolution. We're going to get ripped. Do a push-up? I've been doing them. Oh, nice. Two or three? Well, but – we'll talk about it. Okay. My kids seem <laughs> sad when they see me doing push-ups because mm-hmm. I do it like at every commercial. Daddy, and, are you dying? Like – Dad, I wish I could do it for you. It's like I'm going through cancer pr- treatments. Hmm. I wish I could do it for you, Dad. No, it's just a push-up, son. Dad'll be fine. That's funny. Dad'll be fine. So we'll get to the the fun of the New Year's resolutions as well as, of course, we got to talk about Megyn Kelly. Hmm. All that news ahead. Megyn Kelly's leaving Fox News. There on goes Friday. the ratings, and on Friday, and she's going to NBC, the great and spacious dark building. <laughs> We'll get to all that fun. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. What's up, Terry? Thanks, Matt. President George W. Bush and Bill Clinton plan to attend Donald Trump's inauguration ceremony despite earlier reports that both families might not attend. Until Tuesday, Jimmy Carter was the only former president to RSVP to the 58th presidential inauguration. According to a statement released by Bush, he and former First Lady Laura Bush are pleased to be able to witness the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of American democracy, a swearing-in of President Trump and Vice President Pence. Clinton and his wife, former Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton, will also reportedly attend, despite the ugly attacks against them leveled by Trump during the campaign out of respect for the peaceful transfer of power. There's a theme going on here. George W. W. H. Isn't it H.W. Bush? Herbert Walker Bush. Mm. He won't be there. He won't be there because he's 92 and old. Yeah. Basically. They say due to age. I, I think it's more succinct to say because he's old. <laughs> Same thing. In a closed-door emergency Tuesday meeting, House Republicans reversed uh, on a rule-change measure proposed to gut Congress's independent ethics watchdog. Representative uh, Bob Goodlatte, Goodlatte of Virginia authored the Goodlatte. measure, which passed on Monday night without so much of a debate. The measure was withdrawn by unanimous consent on Tuesday following a public outcry. President-elect Trump... Also criticized the vote in a series of tweets, Majority Leader, uh, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy offered up the motion to put the rule change proposal into effect. So what they, were they doing? That's what everyone, including most of the Republican leadership, like, what are you doing? I mean, when you when you have Donald Trump yelling for restraint, yeah, something's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> something's up. Like, hey, you guys, what are you doing? Control yourselves. And uh, also, uh, Megan Kelly announced that she is leaving Fox News to join NBC News, and that was announced on Tuesday. Kelly was with Fox for 12 years, most recently the host of The Kelly File, but was offered triple her role at NBC News. So uh, the idea is more work, not necessarily more money. But, the money ends up being a question here. Well, she probably got a raise, but not as much as she could have gotten for Fox. It said she did it for her family. She's got a, an, a growing family. Her children are seven and whatever. So it's, yeah. Let's listen to what she said yeah. last night on her show. Play clip one. After more than a dozen years at Fox News, I have decided to pursue a new challenge. This was a tough decision for me because I love this show. Our staff, my crew, my colleagues here at Fox... And you, Mm. 
All of you. Colleagues. Me? Now, I don't actually know most of you, so perhaps it's not true love. But it's the kind of feeling that makes one feel connected to another human being. And that, after all, is why I believe we're here. Human connection. Hmm. The truth is, I need more of that in my life. In particular, when it comes to my children, who are seven, five, and three. There you go. Hmm. Isn't she there because of money? I'm going to bet that. It's, but that money helps you connect. How, is she going to miss her friends at Fox News? Uh, I, I'm sure she has a lot of friends that yeah. are like off air. Yeah, 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 yeah. But she probably won't miss a lot of the on air people there. So think, didn't they fight a lot? It seems like Hannity and O'Reilly, who she's yeah, they in the middle of with shows, is not really. But boy, Fox will miss together. her. She's a ratings. Yeah. Guru. Yeah. She kills it. So I never watched The Kelly Files. Is that the one where she's partners with Agents Mulder and Scully? Uh, no, I think that's a different show. Different show. She, this mm. is a solo show. But she's now going to have her own talk show, I guess. Well, allegedly. Here she goes on kind of talks about what she's going to do in NBC. So I'll be leaving Fox News at the week's end and starting a new adventure. Joining the journalists at NBC News, who I deeply admire. Journalist. I'll be anchoring a daytime show there, along with a Sunday night <laughs> news magazine. And you'll see me there on the big nights, too, for politics and such. I am very grateful to NBC for this opportunity. And I am deeply thankful to Fox News for the wonderful 12 years I have had here. Is she getting Brian Williams' spot? No. Though he mm. did have a Sunday night show that didn't do well. But she apparently will have a daytime show so and a weekend show. She'll have a daytime news program on NBC. And in parentheses, this says, this is all on uh, CNN had this this morning. It says, not a talk show. Kelly intentionally doesn't want mm. to be known as a show like Katie. Katie Couric had a daytime show that <laughs> died horribly. Uh, she'll also have a primetime news magazine on Sundays. Oh, like a, like a 60 minutes, maybe a 30 maybe, minutes. Maybe a 30 minutes. The, the question there is where does that drop in because they have Sunday night football for a good chunk of the year. Mm-hmm. And so where do you put that show? Oh, I drop it right around there. Right around there. Various roles in political and special events covered, so mm. in you know, politics and all that kind She's of stuff. She's going to be so. the new Barbara Walters, except Barbara I wasn't guess. on NBC. Yeah. I could see her on her own sitcom and just call it Kelly. And, you know, the poster it just has her with her hands up to the side like, like this. Kelly. Hmm. <laughs> Kelly exclamation point. There, there was some talk that uh, would this be like a 10 o'clock in the morning show right after the Today Show oh, ends. Oh, that would be smart. It would go up against uh, Kelly Ripa. Ooh, Kelly versus Kelly. Kelly versus Kelly in a, in a Kelly throwdown. Uh, uh, and well, April 2016, she sat down – or Kelly – Megan Kelly sat down with Charlie Rose, and he asked her, what is the perfect television show for you to do? And she said, how about if we merge a little Charlie Rose ah. with a little Oprah yeah. and a little of me? And that's the show. That sounds fantastic. And that kind of sounds like what they're doing. She's um, humble. A little Kelly of Rose. Me. Some other things around this. Previous news talents who have made the jump to daytime, including Katie Couric, Anderson Cooper, and Meredith Vieira, all three of their shows were canceled. Drag one. Strike two. Strike <laughs> Also, uh, one so it f- won't be like that. No. It will not be like that. New York Magazine reports that one Fox insider said that uh, Murdoch balked when she said uh, she asked for $25 million late in the negotiations. Ah. But another person said that Fox actually offered the $25 million. Wow. But NBC had previously said they couldn't even approach Can't $20 even million. get there. 
But so she's making probably a little bit more, but not twenty. It doesn't matter, I guess, money wise. But money always kind of pushes people one way or another. She, but she's also leaving the biggest brand cable success in history, right? I mean, Fox is a big name right now, and they're mm-hmm. po- especially now. She's walking away from big ratings. See, firm. you are like I said, you are describing an NBC sitcom. You know, she's going from riches to Rags less riches. less like, riches. Well, it's almost like, or is it like uh, the Jeffersons moving on up? To yeah. The east side. How do you go from twenty five million a year to only twenty million a year to a deluxe apartment in the sky? Because mm. you go from what the th- the speculation is, she's going from around fifteen to maybe seventeen. But she's not. She's not. It's about her kids. Because she'll also get – she probably has branding deals mm-hmm. and other deals with her books that they'll probably allow her to do more with her books right? and marketing and I don't know. Well, congratulations to Megyn Kelly. And then there's all these conservative groups who are really happy that she's gone from Fox. That's so true. Because she's not – as pro-Trump as others during their mm-hmm. primetime lineup on that network. Um, on a similar note, uh, Charles Manson was yeah. hospitalized. Charles Manson got out of jail. Yeah, he got out of jail free card. Well, for a, uh, an hour or two. But apparently he's like in critical condition. He's yeah. not doing well. He had a uh, an issue and they moved him. I guess he was at San Quentin and yeah. then they moved him to this other yeah, the jail other, now. Uh, and so he's now up in Bakersfield, yeah, like so, the bottom of the earth temperature-wise. <laughs> So he's uh, yeah he got I, I read that yesterday and the headline was you know Manson's out of jail I'm like what oh wait uh, in similar news Ivanka Trump is moving into the same neighborhood as two blocks away the from Obamas the Obamas when they move into their house can you imagine like their HOA meetings Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr Obama you need to take down that shed that shed is not up it's, to code. it's unsightly <laughs> isn't so, it weird that we even care. Yeah, some of this stuff. Like, why do we care? Yeah. I was given a hard time yesterday for caring too much about the celebrities that had passed away while we were gone. Yeah. I mean, holy cow, it was a plague. Yeah. They were dropping. I mean, uh, Father Mulcahy. Mm-hmm. He died, too. What's his name? Yeah, see? <laughs> Father Mulcahy. He was like the, the he was guy my, from MASH. one of my religious leaders. That guy from MASH. What was his name? Oh, he was a great, see? tender-hearted, but could be strong Irish Catholic priest. It's cool. And on Aftermath, she was great. Oh, I didn't remember that. Aftermath. Yeah, they had more TV shows afterwards. Oh, I don't remember those. Yeah, no one really does. (laughs) Somehow I did. It's Hmm. kind of sad. Um, To New Year's resolutions, I've been working out more. Hmm. And which, I mean, relatively speaking. What do you mean? There was really not much going on before. Let's just let's phrase it. I've been working out. Uh, Let's just say this. Hmm. I've I do push ups now. I can do 45. Like on your In knees? one go? Oh, on my knees, yeah. Okay. Oh. With one arm. <laughs> no, I do them on my knees because I'm on, a, I'm on a program that will show me how in 30 days I can get to, I think it's 100 on no. my toes. No. You're just trying to outdo what I told you so, earlier. Is it, fi- is I can get to 50 already on my knees. Is it a website? It's a, it's a, there's the, there's a website. I think it's no, like is the, there a website? A 100 pushup challenge or yeah. something like that. And it's yeah. like within a month and you start on your knees and then you, every time you move to more, but yeah. that's the easy part. I think the pushups I've also been, and this, I don't want to, you know, brag. I don't want to brag, Yeah. Well, here but you go. I broke my exercise band. Oh, nice. And I had this image of Harry Reid flash before my eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that was a mob hit. Was that a mob? Yeah, hit? it just depends on who you're reading. Because he broke reading. his exercise band and it hit him in the eyeball. He did. 
And so that's why I wear safety glasses when I work or, out. Or he got in a fight with his brother. That was the other was theory. That the other one? There was mob hit, fight with brother, or an exercise band. By the way, uh, for the first time ever, I did some official squats. Oh, nice. Thought my knees were just going to pop right out of their did, joint. Did, did, mm. you, did you get below parallel? Is that the goal? Yeah. Probably not. Did okay. you have weights on your back? No. But I had a, I had my band going. So mm-hmm. I had my band. Ooh, resistance. Resistance. And then I, I did my squat. I don't, know if I, I don't know if my belly allows me to get below zero. Didn't somebody from Star Trek say resistance is futile? Probably. Well, it, was more, it wasn't really a someone. It was more of a collective. Oh, he I wasn't see. talking, by the way, about a resistance Bor- Borgish, band. if you will. See, I did 20 push-ups last night. On your knees? No. That's great. One-handed. <laughs> the other hand, I was holding a drumstick and eating it. Yummy. Yeah. At least you're eating protein. 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 It's good stuff. And then we'll eventually get to that because it's all about diet. Forget exercise, honestly. You can get, I think, you can get in great shape yeah. exercising, but you still got to control your diet. Yeah, you have to Which curtail the, uh, the, the income uh, to be able to Blasted diet. I haven't even, you know, we don't know what to do there. So, okay, we will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about universal basic income. As technology takes over and there's no more jobs on the earth... Do you think a country, your, your, your government, should just start handing out a paycheck? Should everyone have access to just a basic amount of money that the government gives them? We'll be talking with a Ph.D. that uh, says it doesn't work that way. you kind of got to decide if you're going to be in a capitalistic economy or not. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with today's increasingly advanced technologies, automated machines are quickly taking the place of humans in the workforce. Examples of this phenomena are popping up all around the country. For example, self-driving cars and buses. Will they eventually replace truck drivers, bus drivers, uh, taxi drivers? All these things, all these changes are going on. But uh, even though less humans are actually or fewer humans are actually working, should we still get paid for a job a machine can do? Um, In fact, in Finland, they are now testing out giving 2000 citizens a guaranteed income um, to see how this is how this works out. Are people just inherently guaranteed an income or does that just fly in the face of? Of capitalism and also, hey, the old biblical terms, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to earn your your keep. Joining us today to help us walk through this uh, difficult issue is Dr. uh, Katerina Niesvant, and she is a Ph.D. assistant professor of philosophy at Concordia University, author of two books. Uh, Dr. Niesvant, thank you. Niesvant, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I this is to me a fascinating discussion because I'm way into uh, the self-driving cars. I can hardly wait for the day that I don't need to drive a car. But now everyone's saying, okay, with all this technology taking over, all the automation happening, we're going to run so many people out of jobs that we need to create a universal basic income. And you've, I think, brought a really great argument as to why that may not be the best idea. Talk to us about universal basic income, first of all, and uh, and what do you think? Is it is it going to eventually be a day where the every government just pays everyone an income? 
Yeah, so maybe I should start by just explaining what that is. Yeah, please. Yes. Um, so, so the idea is that everybody gets an absolutely unconditional regular check from the government. So there's no means test, no work requirement, no timeline. Um, absolutely everybody gets it, and it's, it's supposed to be in an amount at least high enough to cover all basic necessities. So it has to be above the poverty line. You have to be able to survive on that. Hmm. And that idea has been around for really a very long time. And the interesting thing is it's been defended from the right and from the left. So even very conservative thinkers like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman or so forth have defended that. And recently, there's, you know, the idea gained a lot of traction because a lot of people are now worried about the things that you mentioned, like advances in robot technology and digital technology. And you already mentioned these examples of truck drivers and you know, being put out of work by self-driving cars and mm. taxi drivers being replaced by Uber and so forth. So the idea is um, we might really be facing a new work world here because um, we'll see substitution of human workers for machines on a large scale and even in very qualified professions like we might have uh, digital doctors at some point, things like that. So what do we do with all of these people who are replaced by a machine? Mm. So far, we've got those means-tested system, right? You have to, if you want, you know, state support, you have to prove that you've made a reasonable effort to seek work and so forth. But that seems sort of um, a system that wouldn't fit this kind of future very well. You know, if there just aren't enough jobs for people to, you know, to, to apply for. Um, if it's mathematically impossible for everyone who wants a job to find one, then it really seems sort of cynical to require that people make that effort, and it seems much more reasonable to just have this unconditional payment scheme. So, so that's basically the, the premise on which that all rests. Mm. And now, one thing that's really interesting is that within economics, for instance, um, this kind of development is not something that scientists expect. So all of this talk about technological unemployment is really something that the, the dominant tradition within economics completely rejects. It's not something that has historically ever happened that is going to that, that is likely to happen in the future. And so so I think that one thing one thing with the automation argument is the the empirical premise on which it rests just seems to be false. It seems to fly in the face of all historical evidence. And the second problem I think is that People usually understand the the automation argument for, for basic income as a progressive thing. You know, a lot of people think that post-work um, will also mean post-capitalism, and mm. that's clearly not the case. So basic income entirely moves within this capitalist logic. So it really, it seems like, and you mentioned this in your article, basic income after automation, um, that's not how capitalism works. It, it seems like this ends up becoming a political decision between are we going – to create and maintain a capitalistic society um, kind of approach, or are we going to go to more of a, a socialistic, I guess, where uh, you know where we're we're provided for fully by uh, at least guaranteed fully by our governments? It, it, you're, you're, you make a great point that the actual case of technology driving out. Um, our jobs and our ability to make an income, it's it doesn't jibe with um, reality, right? I mean, the, the history yeah. and the data doesn't say that all of this automation is going to actually decrease the jobs. Yeah, yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, 
So, so there's, in fact, within economics, there's even a term for the idea that, the, you know, new technologies will lead to unemployment. Economists call that the Luddite fallacy. The Luddites were uh, a political movement in England in the 19th century. It's not that simple. But um, the, 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 the idea is really considered, you know, a fallacious inference to think that. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for um, why so far new technologies have not led to yeah. more unemployment. And there's also sort of, if you think about the, the logic of the system, what the incentive structure of capitalism is, it's really their principal reason to, to think that that won't happen. So um, reasons that economists usually mention is that new technologies also create new tasks. We have all of these jobs today, um, like software engineers, network administrators, computer technicians, and so forth, that nobody even dreamed of like 60 years ago or, mm-hmm. or 80 years ago. So we've got a substitution of certain jobs, like, I don't know, typesetters, for instance, by the digital development, but we've also got new jobs popping up in their places. Yeah, robot and, mechanic um, or um, yeah. a coder for the robots. I mean, I mean, yeah. there's things that have to be done. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. You need someone to maintain all of this technology. You need someone to further develop it and so forth. So there's usually lots of opportunities that are really unforeseeable. So what, what usually changes is the composition of the job market. But the overall number of jobs does not suffer usually. In fact, you, you, one of your quotes is, robots have never reduced human work hours. And you, there's a great quote you bring up from British economist John Maynard Keynes uh, uh, famously predicted that within 100 years – this was back in 1930 – within 100 years, only 15 hours of work per week would be needed to satisfy one's needs, except that doesn't mean – I mean that didn't come true. I mean we're all still working 50 now more, maybe 50, 60 hours, and yet technology is advanced and we're doing five times more than we used to do. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting experience. Right? We all know that from personal experience, too. Like, whenever there's a new technology introduced in our job, we don't really seem to save time through that at the end of the mm-hmm. day. We just get on a task, right? right? Everybody knows that experience. And if you think about the, the, the incentive structure of the system, it's very logical that that should happen. Um, and imagine that you own a factory and um, you buy a new robot that suddenly cuts production time in half. Say you own a car factory, and um, your car factory has an output of 10,000 cars per day with every employee working an eight-hour shift. And now you've got this new robot technology that enables you to produce 10,000 cars with everybody just working a four-hour shift. Right. So in principle, you know, that could be really good news for employees. That's um, great. Impressive, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we're not shutting I mean, down the thing. factory after four no. hours of work. Now I've just realized I could double my money. Yes, exactly. So instead of sending home people after four hours to spend the rest of the day with their families or hobbies or whatever, you just still require them to come for eight hours and the factory will produce twice as much. Yeah. And that's not because you're an evil person or anything. It's because you know that all other car factory owners will do the same thing and you will just have to keep up with the competition. Um, today, we produce, you know, the, the average American today is five times as productive as their grandparent. So the average American employee today produces five times as many products or as valuable products as their grandmother or their grandfather did. Wow. But that doesn't give us a single minute more of leisure. And that is because, you know, what we, what we choose to do 
um, with this new efficiency increase that we get through the machines, if we choose to just crank out more goods, we don't take more time off. We just increase our productivity. So that's so. That's because we are we are capitalistic, right? I mean, if if we were if we had a different philosophy, a different governing paradigm, and our, my paradigm was life, uh, increasing life ex- life value, not capitalism, yeah. then I might stop everyone working after four hours. Yeah. But the reality well. is that's not the system we live in. So is that what you're saying is that as long as we're choosing politically to be living capitalistic goals, um, we uh, a universal basic income runs counter to that. Yeah, I'm thinking there are different options, you know. Um, so so uh, the bad news is automation won't put us out of work. Mm. The you know, increased productivity through automated technology doesn't lead to more free time or to, to, to better life quality or anything like that automatically. That the, the technological development isn't automatically followed by a social development here. But I think the good news is that we can politically push to use automation for more leisure. It really is our choice. Um, I mean, we have seen restrictions of the workday in the past. Today, we've got at least on paper, it's, it's currently being dismantled, but um, we in principle have the 40-hour work week, which is, you know, a huge advance compared to the 19th century, where the average workday in the English factories was 12 hours per day or mm. even hours per day. So we have seen a decrease here, and we've got vacations and parental leave and sick leave and things like that on top of that. Um, but this reduction was not the result of, you know, the automation that happened from the 19th to the 20th century. It was the result of political struggle. Yeah. So we've had socialist philosophers, we've had workers' parties, we've had strikes and immunization and so forth. So it is possible to achieve all of that, but it just won't be an automatic, re- an automatic result of the new technology. We yeah. really have to push for this. Don't blame the technology. If, if we want to create such a movement, we have to create such a political movement. We don't just, you know, make an argument that automation is going to run us out of business. Uh, Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back more with Dr. Katerina Niesvant um, from the university, uh, professor of philosophy at Concordia University, continuing the discussion about the universal basic income. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, uh, we are discussing universal basic income. In a place, for example, like Finland, they are testing now, giving 2,000 citizens a guaranteed income, uh, guaranteed income with funds that keep flowing, whether participants work or not. And many are even trying to make the argument, in fact, conservatives as well, economists as well, that... um, Universal basic income is necessary because technology, automation, robotics, um, artificial intelligence, all of this is going to someday replace certain jobs. So people need to be taken care of um, and have their income 
you know, prepared and 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 it, it should just become an automatic right of life that you have a, a universal basic income. Joining us on to talk about it is Dr. Katerina Niesvant. She is a professor, assistant professor of philosophy at Concordia University, also the author of two books and the author of the article, Basic Income After Automation. That's not how capitalism works. If you want uh, to get that, we'll put that up on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show, so you can get access to that, uh, that article as well. Dr. Uh, Niesvant, thank you again for being with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Is this um, – so this universal basic income, it, it, it kind of – it goes to this point – some people already are frustrated with those that they believe are kind of lazy and are just taking advantage of the government to get their government mm-hmm. check. Um, it, we, we dis- in, a, in a way, we discriminate against people that just take a check. Even though yeah, – yeah. but and you bring up a really, I think, powerful point in your article that we, it's almost like we've got to figure out what we don't like. Is it that we don't like governments paying for everybody or is it that we don't like people that don't work? But a, a lot of people that need a check, that need support, that can't make it because of illness or affliction or whatever, they – we seem to kind of – we see them as weak, as not contributing to society. Yeah, I think that's really, there's really widespread sort of strange cognitive divide. So on the one hand, we think that those who don't work the eight-hour shift are free riders on the labor power of those who do. And um, uh, whether that is because they are disabled or because their job has been automated, you know, that, that ultimately doesn't matter for, for our value judgment here. And we have this this attitude that our supporting them is basically just charity. But interestingly, we have this attitude only towards the people who receive the government payment, you know, only mm-hmm. towards the people who receive the, the welfare check or maybe the basic income check in the future. We don't have this attitude towards the owner of the equipment. Right. If you own the factory, um, then you can also derive money from it without working. You know, you could also, of course, work if you acted as a factory manager too, but it's not necessary that you do that. You might just appoint a manager, or maybe you don't even own the whole factory. You just own a share in the stocks or something, you know. Mm. So um, this is also a way of living off the money of other people, as socialists have, of course, pointed out. But there isn't nearly as much public complaint about this kind of free riding. And I think what that shows is that our value judgments here are very much shaped by our economic hierarchies. So we look down on the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, those who have no access to resources to sustain themselves. We look down on these people and we think that they must be grateful if others sustain them. Mm. And then on the other hand, we've got the owners of the resources who also don't personally work. They have others work for them using these resources and they skim the surplus. But regarding these people, we usually think that they're entirely within their right or we even admire their success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the person that can retire early and then maybe not work again but just continue to live off of their earnings, we revere. But the one that is disabled and needs that and needs help and and um, you know, some some check or just support from the government, uh we we look at them with almost disgust. How do we so I guess this is part of the issue down the road. If anyone's ever going to be really getting serious about universal basic income, at least in the United States, it seems like you're going to have to 
somehow bridge this divide. Is, is this something that you see that would actually ever take place in the United States? I mean, it is it is being tested in Finland and other places. Yeah, it's very hard to predict. Um, I mean, one, one argument that people also put forward in, in, in favor of basic income is that it would alleviate the social stigma. You know, currently, welfare payments, you know, are also uh, by the recipient often perceived as humiliating. Right. Um, and, and also with the agencies that administer them have to do all of this means testing, they are very intrusive, right? The recipients basically have to give up privacy completely. Huh. So that is also one, one reason why people think basic income could be a good idea. Um, whether, you know, it's realistic to have that in, in, in the United States in the near future, I don't think that we'll see that anytime soon. And in fact, if you look at these experiments, they usually don't put into place a real basic income, most of them. The Finnish experiment, for instance, is limited to currently unemployed people. Mm. So it's not, you know, completely unconditional. It's not for everybody. It's not a representative sample of the population which gets it. It's, it's the people who would otherwise receive the current welfare checks. Mm. And then on top of that, the payment that you currently get in Finland, it's about the equivalent of 600 US dollars, which, you know, um, even, even in the US wouldn't be, would, would probably not be enough, but Finland has even higher living costs. Yeah. So basically the two criteria of basic income, that it's unconditional for absolutely everybody and that it's above the poverty line, are not fulfilled. Hmm. You know, one thing that it does remind me of, though, is like Social Security, where, uh, you know, when you're a senior and you receive your Social Security benefits, it almost seems like everyone will take that. And it, it just yeah. it's because they feel like they paid into it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, even people, even, you know, they're even saying, you know, there, there might need to be a means testing on Social Security, because if you're a wealthy doctor with three retirement packages, you may not need Social Security, except they still want it. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it, I, it's this really is kind of um, it's almost it's yeah. just depends on where you are in the spectrum of wealth. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's very, you know, very closely tied to our conceptions of dessert. So with, you know, the retirement um, payments, it's a, it's a completely different thing because the assumption is you deserve that. You've put a lifetime of work into that, mm. and now you deserve to get something out of the system. That's only fair. That's the conception. And um, this this conception of, you know, how much somebody somebody gets will, you know, in fact depend on, 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 on what they put into it, how much they deserve. That is a laudable conception, you know, in, in principle, but that's not what reality looks like at all. It's not as if, for instance, currently the jobs that, that put the highest burden on the employee are the best paid jobs. Otherwise, you know, construction workers and so forth would top the pay scale. Right. Um, our salary structure is very much determined by, you know, our social evaluations and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's not at all that, you know, the high-paid jobs are also the jobs that are really, you know, burdensome for the employee. Often the contrary is the case that you have very burdensome jobs in the very low-paid sector. Mm. In fact, yesterday I spoke to 400 construction workers that walk out every day and work all day long, 10-hour days or so, in freezing 22-degree or less weather. And I sat there and thought, what's the difference between the construction workers in the room versus the leaders, the management? The management may have had degrees or education or had been born into the family that owned the company. And 
it's it's so much of this is just almost random. And if you have the degree and the education and the ability to go to college and get that degree, then we put you on one part of the spectrum. And if not, we put you sometimes on the other. And then there's this this inevitable battle for who's going to yeah. get what. What uh, what do you think, though, with technology? We, we hear about Donald Trump and all of his uh, trying to save jobs and I mean, it seems like in about um, with all the advancement of technology and the ability to do more and more and more, there might be a way that you can do a mix of less capitalism. I don't know how you do this, but we could keep more jobs in the United States, for example, if we were able to make more widgets with technology. Does that make sense? Yeah, um is there a day that, that the company will settle for less profits to keep people employed? I think that would really require large-scale political measures. Okay. Because we've got, you know, the problem is the, the individual company is basically in the same situation as the individual employee. If you just decide to have your workers only do a six-hour shift, pay them the same salary, um, as you did for the eight-hour shift and everybody else. And, of course, your products will not be competitive at all. Mm-hmm. But if we impose a general regulation that you know, only a six-hour shift is allowed, which is something that you know we did in, in the past when we imposed the, the eight-hour work week that replaced you know, the 10, 12, 16-hour work day that we had before. Um, if, if everybody is subject to the same rules, this can totally work. It's just it'll be difficult for, you know, individual employees or for, for individual companies to say we are going to adopt that without everybody else doing that. Right. And, of course, there's also an international problem here because what we see is that even, you know, even if we, if we have that in one particular country, there is a danger of companies moving on to the next country where, you know, I mean, companies currently moving into into developing countries where the working conditions are very bad. You don't have to pay, you know, sick leaves. There isn't an eight-hour workday. There's a ten-hour more workday, and so forth. But it's not as if we are, you know, left helpless in the face of these developments. I feel that's a message that we currently often get from politics and in the media. You know, all of these are sort of um, unmanageable, automatic developments that we can't do anything about and we just have to cope with the consequences somehow. But that's not the case. We are active agents in that. And there are all sorts of political measures that we could take to to go in a different direction. Mm. And that's, I mean, again, that's a political discussion. And when you say political, it really is. It's about human beings agreeing to how we want to do this. I think a lot of people are just frustrated with politics in general. Like that nothing yeah, happens yeah. and that's why they feel hopeless about it. But but it's a really – I think it's an important point that you bring up that it's – if if we want to change the system, we can change it. You just – we just need yeah. to get talking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of people are, are understandably very frustrated and, uh, you know, feel very powerless. Most, I think most individuals do that and it's a completely understandable feeling. Um, but – the thing is, these things have been possible in the past, and there's no reason to assume that they won't be in the future. And a lot of, you know, there are a lot of policy proposals on the table. For instance, Thomas Piketty in his Capital in the 21st Century book made a lot of suggestions for how we could 
counter the development that he describes in that book, you know, that from the outside is often perceived as inevitable. We just develop towards a more and more unequal capital distribution, a more, more and more unequal society. But his data very clearly shows that that's not the case. Um, all sorts of political measures, you know, taxation measures and investment into education mm. and, you know, international taxes and, and treaties and so forth can influence these developments. So, in principle, you know, there's a lot that we could do. And the interesting thing is, I think, that a lot of people would actually want that. So, usually, if you, you know, a lot of people say that they would like to spend less time. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, I mean, who, who, who wouldn't, really? <laughs> A lot of people think that, you know, it, it's bad that they have so little time to spend, you know, on, on other things to spend with their children and so forth. And I really think it would be a huge advance for everybody's quality of life if instead of eight hours per day, we only had to work for six hours. Yeah. And, so, and, and a lot of people seem to agree. Yeah. No, I, I think it's I think it's a great idea. And get... And, and still stay creative and spend a little time doing other things that actually recreate you, have real recreation that might prepare you to come back to work and be a contributor at a whole different level. I mean, there's some I can just hear in the media saying, oh, come on, lazy, lazy people. Uh, interesting stuff. Dr. Katerina Niesvon, thank you so much for your insight into the universal basic income and automation. Folks, don't believe the hype that automation's only going to run people out of jobs. Uh, the, the history doesn't show that. The research doesn't show that. The data doesn't show it. It just, it's, it's not going to be that way. Um, again, but it's a choice up to us. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, interesting learnings uh, there about universal basic income and automation. So this idea that we should support people, it really frustrates some. In fact, think about it with you. Do you, do you think people should live by the sweat of their brow? And if they don't work, you, don't re- you only reap what you sow. Do you believe that? Because, I mean, that's in the Bible, for heaven's sakes. But then what do you do when someone can't work? Well, I mean, it depends because I've seen a lot of people that can work, but they pretend like they can't work. Okay, so what do you do with the people that have the physical ability to work because their body works fine, but their mind, their mental abilities, they have severe depression? Well, severe depression is not real. I mean, in the end, you're going – you have to decide, are we going to look after people or aren't we? And we've seen on this show before, we keep thinking that the greatest way to promote democracy is to promote capitalism. But on the show, we've, we've had other experts say the fastest way to promote a healthy democracy is not capitalism. It's maintaining and giving more women more rights. You give women full rights – the research shows the fastest way to create a healthy democracy, economy, country. Um, you got to decide. It's not as easy as just saying I'm a capitalist, but I don't take care of people, but I also believe in taking care of people. It's complicated. That's why we're here, to help you walk through it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Stick with us. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy New Year to you. It's Wednesday. Nice. We're celebrating Wednesday now? It's Wednesday. It's hump day or halfway through the week. That's a good thing of Monday being the national holiday. Yeah. Oh, it's it's like getting the bonus fry in that bag of McDonald's, uh-huh. you know? It's like, whoa, there's two more at the bottom of the bag. Harvey's question, which is which is better, having Friday off or a Monday off? Why not take do you both? Want, do you want Friday into the weekend or Monday coming out of the weekend? Which uh, is the better day off? Uh, uh, I say Monday. Yeah? Monday for sure. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. I I, 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 I hear know. people say that, and they say because it kind of eliminates all the Monday things, except now that's also Monday, Tuesday. So it kind of piles up. But, but people, you, people phone in Friday anyway. Oh, they do? Don't, don't they? Really? No. You guys do, right? No, we don't. We're, no. we're always 100%. Top shelf. Don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Hmm. Kind of awkward. Wow. Tells us a lot. <laughs> Work ethic. Hey, today we'll be talking about how to build your brand, but build it as a relationship. Because social media now, your mm. branding is about relationship. And by the way, have you ever played those logo games where you can guess the logo? Yeah. I can't do it anymore. I, when I was younger, I was able to be – I was yeah. really good at it, but – I mean, My, who plays a logo game? That's brilliant if you're we a also had, We had a game called Advertising Junior, right? And all it did, is it gives you the taglines of all these commercials. Yeah. And I was a kid. I could say them before they were over. Before my mom could finish the card or whatever, it was like a, a game you play in the car. Yeah, and we just I would win every single game, and then after a while, you're like, "Wow, I watch too much TV. I really need to get outside more." I'm the worst with cars. Like we'll be driving up by a car, and I'll say, "Oh, that's a Lexus," and my wife will just look at me and say, "You're so cute. You're not such even a, close. Not even close. That's a hybrid. <laughs> that's a, a BMW. BMW. It's a Mini Cooper." Not Alexis. <laughs> no, he he loves Mini Coopers. Careful oh, sure. with that. Yeah, okay. Hey, today we're also going to be talking about um, a car licking moose. Oh, there you go. How many times have I told you mm. watch out for a moose if they come lick your car? Is it Bullwinkle? No. Hmm. Just some moose. Moosin. I think there's multiple moose. Mooses. Moosin. Moosin. Hmm. We'll be I getting into that it's, fun. It's Meese. Meese? Is Meese. Meese? Oh, Matt Meese. He's a great actor on Studio C. Yeah. Hmm. Good times. Plus, other headlines, other information straight ahead. So much to talk about. But first and foremost, to Terry South with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Senate Republicans launched an aggressive effort on Tuesday to repeal large parts of the Affordable Care Act, introducing a budget bill that could excise much of Obamacare with a simple majority of the Senate. This morning, President Obama is meeting with Democrats to strategize on ways to try to defend the law. Don't know what he can do. They don't have any way of stopping a vote from the Republicans. They don't have the majority. Vice President-elect uh, Mike Pence will meet with House Republicans this morning and have lunch with Senate Republicans with Obamacare plans high on the menu for both meetings. Nice. Sorry. Nice. Sorry. More than 1,100 law school professors across the country have band together to urge the Senate not to confirm Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama as Attorney General. Professors from 170 law schools in 48 states have written a letter to send to Congress. To, uh, to, uh, they wrote it yesterday. It says, we are convinced that Jeff Sessions will not fairly endorse our nation's laws and promote justice and equality in the United States. 
Hmm. Also found out that North Dakota and Alaska were not involved in this because they don't have law schools. Okay. Stuff you find out. You got to have Six, a law school. Because it says 48 states. Right. right. Six people, including the president of the NAACP, were arrested late Tuesday after staging a sit-in at the Alabama office of Senator Jeff Sessions to protest his nomination as attorney general. NAACP President Cornell Williams Brooks tweeted a photo promising to stay until Sessions withdrew his name from consideration or until they were arrested. The arrested part happened first. Yeah. Busted. Um, another story here, an ongoing review of Representative Duncan Hunter of California. His spending has revealed that the California congressman has spent nearly $600 in campaign money to fund his pet rabbit's air travel. Really? This is out of the San Diego Union-Tribune this morning. While the House Office of Congressional Ethics is an uh, ongoing investigation, noted the expenditure has an example of Hunter's personal use of campaign funds, which uh, federal law prohibits. His spokesman insisted the hundreds of dollars spent quote, in cabin rabbit transport fees was just a big misunderstanding. It may be a air miles, credit card sort of paperwork issue, but still 600 bucks to move a rabbit around the country. But if that's not a an issue, he has some other things he needs to be worried about when it comes to expensing issues. He's expensed oral surgery, a garage door, video games, vacation resort stays, a jewelry purchase in Italy, all totaling nearly $62,000. Really? Might just be a paperwork thing, though. Hmm. And finally, doctors in Vietnam removed surgical forceps from a man who unknowingly carried them inside his body for 18 years. Really? The 54-year-old man said the forceps had probably been left in his abdomen since 1998 when he had emergency surgery after a traffic accident. He felt only the occasional pain, and a clinic had given him medicine for the suspected stomach ulcer. An x-ray taken late last year showed the forceps were to blame the six-inch-long instrument had broken apart and become lodged in his stomach. They were removed in an operation. The medical errors are not uncommon in Vietnam. Over the past year, there have been two cases of doctors operating on wrong limbs and three cases of men being diagnosed as pregnant. Boy. Mm. Yuck. <laughs> Yuck. Anyway, in similar yeah. news. Anyway. Car-licking moose. Ugh. Alberta government officials are warning visitors to uh, Peter uh, Luhid Provincial Park that a moose licking is out licking salt off of vehicles mm, okay. that are parked at the trailhead. Big salt lick. That's what a the big, cars it's are. A big, it's a big Block Cadillac salt. salt lick. Yeah. So watch out uh, because the moose, li- they, they, who, they like to lick the cars. It gives them the salt they need. Okay. It's got to be slimy. Oh, yeah. It's just gross. But, like, what do you do? What's moose breath like? Oh, you have no idea. It's horrible. It's salty. (laughs) That's why we like Moose Mints. One of our sponsors. Aren't they a sponsor? Moose Mints? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Taking that salty (laughs) taste out of your mouth. The government advises people to sound their horn or to try to get the liquors away away from their vehicles. Shoe moose. Shoe moose. It also warns, do not try to push a moose nice. away from the vehicle. That's a good tip. Good yeah. tip. Never push a moose. In Canada, a female moose weighs an average of 750 to 926 pounds. Wow. A moose could weigh as much, a male moose could weigh as much as 1,100 pounds. And they're they're almost five, six feet tall at the shoulder, so they're pretty big. Don't mess with a moose. Didn't they write a book about this, too? If you give a, if you give a moose a salt lick... They, you know, it's like, it's the, same, it's the same author as if you give a mouse a cookie... Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, if you give a moose a salt lick. Mm. Mm. 
he's going to ask for water. Yeah. And so then he's going to want you to take him to the lake. And if you take him to the lake, he's going to want to go for a right. swim. There you right. go. And then it gets back to the salt lake. <sighs> hmm. It's a complicated web. <laughs> um, now, yesterday, I, I missed yesterday. You did. I thought yesterday was the first day. Extended vacation, yes. Yeah. But um, officials, there's a, there's a story about a state trooper that pulled over a woman to ask them out. And I, I guess this is not acceptable. Really? So if you see a female that you want to ask out and you're a trooper, you can't just pull them over. So you say a ticket or a date? Or is he pulling them over to ask them specifically for the date? Apparently he's pulling them over. Wow. A New Jersey state trooper is accused of trying to cover up that he pulled over a woman during traffic stops just to ask them out on dates. Mm. Marquise Prather, 37, of Linden, was arrested Friday. Prather's attorney said he will plead not guilty. State police began looking into three-year veteran uh, after several women complained about his conduct. Investigators found that Prather showed uh, a pattern of stopping women between the ages of 20 and 35. Investigators said he would turn off his wireless microphone Mm. during the stops and falsely report it had malfunction. You'd think after about the fifth or sixth time, they'd be like, what? What's going on here? So as as part of this, because hmm. on the show we like to help people, right? We're servant kind of leaders. We want to lead really? by service. Servant leaders. Like yeah. It. And so um, our very own Jeff Simpson has put together some pickup lines oh. that troopers could use while they pull people over. If he had these, he probably wouldn't have been arrested. Well, he wouldn't have been scaring these women away, and he would have actually probably gone out with some of them, and he'd be married by now. All right. Number one. Yeah. I'm going to have to write you a ticket because you're guilty of being too cute. I like that one. Hmm. Do you realize how fast you were making my heart beat? <laughs> wow. I pulled you over because you were driving alone in the LOV lane. <gasps> wow. LOV lane. I'm going to hmm. need to see your license, registration, and relationship status. Wow. All right. That's kind of forward. Yeah. Stop. Or My Mom Will Shoot is the name of an underrated Sylvester Stallone movie. Care to watch it with me tonight? Wow. It's kind of far-reaching. Kind of involved, yeah. And then finally, you have the right to remain beautiful. Anything you can and anything you say can and will be considered adorable. You have the right to be treated to a steak dinner. If you cannot afford a steak dinner, I would be happy to treat you to one if you wish. Do you understand these rights as they've been explained to you, and do you agree to go out with me? Hmm. Wow. Do you, it's kind of do, wordy, but yeah. You, but do you? Well, it's just the Miranda. No, I understand. But it's um, when you get to that point. It's kind of. Do you, do you read those rights when she's in handcuffs? Like, are you handcuffing her while you're doing that? Because that seems creepy. Yeah, of course. Or do you just do it while they're sitting in the car? Hey, lady. Well, they've got to be handcuffed. Now, okay. What if a female officer did the same thing to you? I'd be and flattered. started reading your rights to go out to a steak dinner with her. I would be flattered. Would but. you or would you be afraid because she's got a taser and a handgun? I, I'd be confused because it would probably be on the side of the freeway because that's where I spend most of my driving yeah. time. And it's like, is this really the time and place for this? I would just ask her if it would be okay if I brought my wife. There you go. What if she said no? Oh, well. She's not back, invited. The ball's back in your court there, Jeff. What would you say at that point? I'll just make sure we talk about voiceovers so it can be considered a business dinner. There you go. And expense it. Yeah. It's done. <laughs> I don't know. This is this officer's crossing the line, I think. Yeah. I don't know if there's a way to... Marquise Prather. Yeah. 
This is the Cop Love soundtrack, by the way. Is this it? Mm-hmm. Nice. A little Beautiful. stinger at the end. That's and by good. the way, perfect timing. Hmm. Uh, so I went and saw the movie La 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 Land. Isn't that a Christmas movie? La 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 Land. No, that's a different one. Okay. This, too, too many lollies. Um Yeah. What'd you think? It was a movie. Really? Not not really your your thing? Because I know someone in this room is really eager to see the Sean has seen it twice. Sean likes it. Rod Gustafson saw it three times. Yeah. I've seen it zero. Hollywood, you can tell why Hollywood likes this movie because it's a Hollywood movie. It's all about Hollywood, how hard it is to make it there. And if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Allegedly, yeah. So – Is that New York? Yeah, it is. Okay. You'd have to point that out. Sorry. That's Um, in a song. It is in a song. But it's – I don't know. Hmm. I'm not sold. I had to choose between that and go see Star Wars. Why didn't you see Star Wars? Well, I took my son, three sons, yeah. and my wife. It was kind of my wife's present. You kind of outnumber her. Well, but it was her present. Oh. Well, she could go over there and you could go over here. And my my 13-year-old son kept leaning over and saying, are you serious? Why are we doing this? Do you hate me? How much longer? Is this big? He really did. He asked that about 20 minutes before the end. How much longer is this? <laughs> It's kind of a, it's it sounds like the feeling I went through when I saw the Les Mis movie that came out a couple oh, years Les ago. Les Mis, that's a great movie. Well, ah, the problem was there was a scene where um, who's who plays the Wolverine? Uh, Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman's in there. He's singing and doing his thing, and it's fine. But he comes like he's in the sewer of France. He's down there swimming around. He pops out of the water. I'm waiting for the Wolverine claws to come out, and it didn't happen. Was he bare chested? No, but oh. I mean, it looked like when in the Wolver in the Wolverine X Men movie when he gets the adamantium put into his skull and he comes out of the, the 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 tub or whatever. When he comes out of that with his claws all ready to go, that's what it looked like. Except it didn't happen, and it reminded me. I'm still watching the show where they're going to sing some more. It. I didn't like the show. Not good. You don't like you some Ryan Gosling? Was it good? Uh, Ryan or was fantastic, you... and okay. what's her name was brilliant. I love what's her name. What's her name? What is her name? She's Emma Stone. Emma Stone, fantastic. Couldn't have it's figured just, that out. It, and <laughs> a million it just, years. It just doesn't end the way you would think it would end, and it. It just was there any explosions? No one. No, I don't think there was one explosion. Any car chases? No. Don't no, people no fly around and while they're dancing or uh-huh. something? Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of cable work. That's what we call it in the biz. Cable work. Anyway, I don't want to discourage people from seeing it. It's just it's not my cup of tea. I mean, you drink tea? I don't even drink tea. Oh, it's not. My, well, that's your problem. It's not my cup of Joe. No, it's not my cup of. Hot chocolate. I don't like hot chocolate. It's not my cup of cider. I don't know. You don't drink anything in a cup. It all comes from a can. It's all from a can. Can from heaven. Well, we will take a break. When we come back, we're talking how to build your brand using relationships. Really, it's about branding in the social media world. It's the future, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Some place, some place, some place to fall. 
I can't hold on much longer. Give me some place to fall. Discover the best in international, national, and local artists all live on Highway 89, weeknights at 10 Eastern on BYU Radio. Give me some place to fall. On the next SCPD Night Check. It's 2 a.m. and I'm currently in pursuit of a half-naked male heading south on Veneer Street. I've got him clocked at 1.5 miles per hour. Most people think it's the high-speed chases that are dangerous, but it's actually the low-speed ones that give you the most trouble. The suspect appears to be topless, and it also looks like he's wielding a bottle. Uh, oh, he, he just took a swig from it now, and he's uh, zigzagging all over the place. I swear, these perps are looking younger and younger every day. Oh, okay, he's slowing down now. He's slowing down. Looks like his battery gave out on him. Time to take this guy into custody. Sir, do you realize how slow you were going back there? Uh, sir, I'd appreciate it if you didn't use that kind of language with me. Sir, your speech is clearly slurred. I'm going to have to place you under arrest for your safety and the safety of the other drivers. Okay, I'm going to need backup on this one. This perp is taunting the officer and he keeps getting out of his cuffs. SCPD, night shift. Cleaning up the streets of South Carolina, one toddler at a time. Welcome back, friends. Uh, In today's world, we keep hearing the phrase, build your brand. You need to build your brand. But what exactly does that mean, and how do we do that? Mark Bonchek, co-founder or founder and CEO of Shift Thinking, has a few ideas for us today and believes that you don't have a relationship with your brand, but that brands are the relationship. Uh, he's here today this morning to discuss with us how our branding um, is is so much more about a relationship today. Mark Bonchek, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you, Matt. It seems like that is so true. In the social media world, it, it's almost like I have uh, the ability to continually keep just fostering this relationship with my employees or my fans or my friends. Um, is that what you mean, or what do you mean by branding as a relationship? Well, there are a couple of things that are all going on at the same time. And one of the things, as you mentioned, like with social media, is just look at how we relate to brands today the way we did before. I mean, it used to be that the way you related to a brand was is they paid a lot of money and they came over your TV, and you didn't have access to do the kinds of things that a company did. But today, if you look on Facebook or Twitter or any of the social media outlets, a company's Facebook page looks the same as a person's Facebook page. So the first thing that's happened is there's just been a huge leveling of the playing field so that people and companies are kind of relating to us the same way. Hmm. So that's, that's the first one is just this leveling of the playing field. But the second thing that we've found, and this is some really interesting research that's come out of some uh, – professor at Princeton, and there's a book called The Human Brand. It turns out that our brains are really wired to relate to people. I mean, you know, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, we didn't have brands. And so our brains are wired to relate to people. And they hook people up to MRI machines, and they find that we relate to brands the way we relate to people. If I show you a picture of a face of a friend and I show you a logo of a brand you love, 
the brain reacts the same way. So there's a neurological way in which our brands need to behave like people, and we relate to them as people. So those are things that are kind of hardwired in us and some things that are really new based on the technology available to us today. Boy, that makes sense too, right? I mean, we've... We we all have evolved without this technology, and now the technology is a part of us. Is it um, – because one of the things you mentioned in your article is that branding used to be kind of just your image, the brand that we would burn into the hide of the cow. Um, right. But, but I guess behind every image, there was always the relationship of the farmer or the rancher that owned those cows. That's true, except that there the relationship was kind of one of owner, right? right? I'm going to brand the cow because that says that I own you. And one of the things that um, we looked at is how to think about this brand as relationship. And you know, my whole purpose of my work is to shift people's thinking and give people new mental models. I, I like to say when when you're hanging onto a trapeze bar and the rope is fraying, you got to go to a new bar, but you need that new bar. So I, I really work on what are the new bars people can jump to. And as we looked at it, we really look at the world of relationship through this lens of, of a traditional um, view. So for a company, that means that it's a seller and buyer or an employer and an employee. Um, and by the way, I know, you know, you do such great work with relationships and the human dimension, not just the business dimension. And I think this also applies there. You know, we kind of think of it as husband, wife or parent, child or something like that. But where we started to look is to say, let's think about the if the brand is a relationship, then maybe you can control that relationship. And I don't mean control the interaction in the traditional context. I mean change the relationship. So it's not just a, a seller and a buyer, for example. So, you know, what that starts to look at is, is, well, let's take Nike, for example. Like, yes, they make shoes and sell shoes, but their brand as a relationship is more like a coach to an athlete. And mm. that's their mission is to awaken the athlete and all of us. So you're not just relating to, to Nike as a maker of shoes, which is more like the relationship with Adidas. You're relating to them like a coach. And notice their tagline, one of the best taglines ever, is just do it. Not just buy it, mm. but just do it. More like a coach would say to someone on their team. So really, it's, it's, it's turning your brand into something, into a relationship with somebody, not just a transaction with somebody. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting to look if you know um, – you know, Uber and Lyft are two of the popular yeah. ride-sharing um, businesses. And yes, they have an innovative business model, but they've also changed the relationship that's been at the heart of that industry. Because typically, you think about the relationship you have with the taxi driver, and it's driver-passenger. It's transactional. I'm paying you to drive me somewhere. But what's interesting is that Lyft and Uber are different relationships. And they're actually different from each other. So Lyft is like they like to say, you know, your friend with a car. Their relationship is kind of friend to friend. The assumption is, is that it's kind of like you called a friend for a ride. But, yeah, you happen to pay them. And that's why in Lyft rides, the tradition is you often sit up front because mm. they want you to have a conversation with the driver. Uber is a little different. It's not really driver passenger. I mean, it is transactionally, but. 
their premise is, hey, this is an opportunity for people to make some extra money. So it's more like there's an entrepreneur driving the car, and you're almost like an investor that's helping them pay for their house renovation or their kids to go to college. It's very different than a taxi driver transactional relationship. And the fact that you don't have to make the payment at the end helps to reinforce this more social and less transactional relationship. That's so interesting. And it's because you're mentioning these thriving companies that seem to be at least perceptive or perception wise doing so well in this new economy. Is is this a millennial thing? Is this a generational thing? Because, you know, it seems like the old business model was, you know, I'll provide you whatever. And you'll the transaction was always just you pay me. It's just always a payment. But here there almost seems like more altruistic meaning behind having this be a relationship-based uh, you know, event. Yeah, I think it is. I, but I don't, I don't think it's restricted to millennials. But I think more of the you know, digital natives are, are bringing this about. Um, you know, I, if you look at the things that they value, there definitely is a view that you should have profit and purpose, that there should be transaction and relationship come together, that things need to be about meaning, not just money. Um, but I think that others are responding to it. So I don't think it's just a matter of how to target and segment for that demographic. I think it happens to be um, led and be accelerated by the millennial demands. Mm. But there are plenty of non-millennials who are responding to the Uber proposition and, I mean, Nike was certainly successful because of this for a long time. If anything, I think that this is something that um, any, you know, any company can take advantage of. I mean, I, I was actually doing some work with a client um, last month that's a mining company. And looking at the, it through this lens, too, is, is who are you other than just a miner? What would it mean for a mining company to have a relationship with its constituencies where it's more about um, a steward? For the environment or an entrepreneur who's bringing innovation to an industry. So there are any number of areas where this applies, not just in kind of the, quote, digital economy that's the millennial Silicon Valley stereotype. Yeah. Oh, I think it's and I think it's important to recognize this transition because uh, as I've been doing some of my own marketing for my coaching and stuff, um, the, the experts are telling me, look, you can go in and try to make a sell in a minute. Or you can just cultivate that same lead over time and it, it will dramatically improve the amount of money, the quality of money and, and relationship over time. So instead of just wham, bam, thanks for buying, um, spend some time nurturing culturing a, a culture of giving, giving, giving before you ever ask for anything. I think that's true. I do think, though, that you have to go further than that because – we live in a world that's very transparent. People are very sophisticated. And I think the context really matters. And I, I know you were talking about this on one of the uh, shows I was listening to of yours where you're talking about in a, this was in a, in a marriage that the context of the communication really matters. Mm. And was it, is it about love or judgment, you were saying, which yeah. I think is so true. And I think that's the same thing here is what is the context of that relationship and of that communication with a prospect or a customer? And, and there you have to ask, is the context the transaction or the relationship or a shared purpose? And the difference is, I like to say, are you building the relationship to drive the transaction 
or are you embedding the transaction inside the relationship? Is the relationship bigger than the transaction? And so there it's true. It's not just a one and done, as you said. It is about cultivating that relationship. But is it just a really long sales cycle where mm-hmm. you're building the relationship in order to get the sale? People can sense that. They totally and can. And a company that I think does it really well is Sephora in the beauty industry. They sell cosmetics. And, you know, the difference of if someone walks into the department store and it's the here, can I spray this perfume on you, you know, so that you'll buy it versus what Sephora does, which is they're about a shared purpose of they call it beauty together. They really want people to feel feel themselves almost like makeup artists, and they're all about educating people and informing them. And, yes, they happen to sell the cosmetics, but the transaction is inside of a relationship that has a broader purpose. They're not just trying to get friendly with you in order to get you to buy something. Right. Because, I mean, like you say, people sense what your intent is and mm-hmm. – um, I guess this really is. It's time for a shift. If you live in the information age with social media, you you may as well start recognizing relationship. I mean, they they seem to be hand in hand. That's right. And and even more importantly, it's not just your relationship with others, but it's their relationships with with them with themselves too. Whether it's as employees or customers and so on. So. A lot of people focus on, you know, well, how do I get people to be advocates for me? Yeah. Well, you want it. You've got to make it a reciprocal relationship. One of the things about communication today is it's not linear and it's not one way. It, it's both ways. It's many to many, not just one to many, as they say. Yeah. And so what that means is you have to ask yourself, hey, if I want my fans, customers, employees to be advocates for me, my brand, am I equally an advocate for them? And usually that's not an even balance. I think that's such a great point. And it's because this is this is a network now, right? I mean, this is but this is me looking out for you, your brand, your ideas. And I guess this is where you see a lot of times in blogs and vlogs, um, these people that they share, they'll co-write an article because they so they'll have someone on their podcast because they appreciate their insight. But it's about let me build your brand, you help me build my brand, let me share your relationships. It's it's about it's about the whole. It's about growing everybody instead of just the one. Exactly, absolutely. It, it is about the everybody, and and do we have? I always come back to this idea of the shared purpose, which is not just something you do to or for others, but what you do with them. And what's that broader shared purpose that we're all at work on and becomes like a potluck? You know, in a potluck um, dinner, I bring the entree, you know, you bring the wine and dessert, and we each have to bring our own thing or it doesn't work. And if you have that shared purpose, then it's clear, okay, we're bringing some things and you're bringing some things. So, you know... If you're like an outfitter of like, a, you know, an REI or a Patagonia or so on, and Nike has this a little bit too, that potluck is, hey, we've got the equipment and you've got the sense of adventure and together can go do some great things. So in terms of a brand, and it's the same thing with Starbucks. Mm. You know, they're so successful because they're not just selling coffee. They're creating what they call a third place between home and work where conversation and community and connection can happen. 
And so they're basically saying, hey, we bring the coffee and the Wi-Fi and the comfortable seating, mm. right? And you bring the connections and relationships. And together we create community. That's cool. Cool. Community marketing, really. We're speaking with Mark Bonchek uh, about how to build your brand as a relationship. Uh, he's the chief epiphany officer of Shift Thinking. Go check out Shift Thinking um, on uh, on the Internet, and we'll come back, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Today, talking relationships and community when it comes to building your brand. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Think of a brand that you love, that you just, uh, you can't get enough of. And um, I'm going to bet when you get into that brand, there's some component about a relationship. You have a deeper connection to that. I mean, it, it might be community. It might be a sense of altruism. There's something deeper than just the fact that, hey, they provide a transaction that I enjoy. Um, joining us is Mark Bonchek. He is the founder and CEO of Shift Thinking, and um, he's also called the Chief Epiphany Officer of Shift Thinking. His goal is to help us reset our minds and our paradigms about how we build brands, how we look at companies and organizations. And one of the things he wants us to understand is the power of the relationship that is part of the brand. Um, uh, Mark Bonchek, thank you again for being with us. Great to be here. This um, this is a I think an interesting thing because I think it's easier. It seems like to to have that relationship kind of mentality with my brand and my identity as a business when I'm small. But how do you how does Uber make it and get it into the hearts and the minds of all of their people? Because I could see being really mad at the lack of relating of one of my Uber drivers and then consider that Uber. Yeah, it's a great point, and it's one of the areas where digital technology is um, enabling companies to, as they would call it, scale the relationship, meaning to get big but seem small. And one of the key pieces of that is the way in which data is used and feedback is used. So the ability of to rate the driver afterwards and provide some comments afterwards makes a big difference. You know, with a taxi driver, it's transactional because maybe you wrote down the number of the taxi. But if you had a bad experience in a taxi, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do beyond, mm-hmm. you know, give them a lower tip. That's about it. And then it's done and over with. Whereas with Uber, the fact that there's that feedback loop built in where you can, you know, give them a lower rating, which affects whether or not they can keep driving. Mm. And by the way, did you know that they rate you as well? Oh, I didn't know that. The drivers rate the passengers. Like that guy's a and jerk. So, he, which yeah. is, which also, I mean, that is implicit. Then is, is that there's a community here, that there's and yeah. there's and there's a feedback loop where we can both comment and impact each other equally. Uh, exactly, and that changes that relationship. Although I'm not, I have a, a fairly strong definition of community compared to audience. Hmm. I'm not sure that Uber has a community. No. My test for a community is whether or not 
people relate to each other in effect when the brand isn't in the room. Mm. Can so, they still talk? So, Can they still interact, you mean? Yeah. Is there a relationship of Uber customer to Uber customer? In the case of Uber, not so much. They have a strong sense of identity and affiliation and loyalty. But compare that to Sephora, who has multiple um, communities that they've built around um, advice on how to apply makeup. They have a whole thing that's almost like a private Instagram for people to share the looks they've created and the and the cosmetics that they use to create the look. And now they're creating a new one, which is all about education and special interests. So if you have, you know, uh, acne, how do you relate with other customers about what they do with acne? So they are very actively connecting customers with each other, whereas Uber doesn't do that as much. Lyft does it a little more, actually, because they're trying to connect at least the passenger with the driver to promote conversation between the two. So I always look for that peer-to-peer connection as a test for community. It's it's interesting. Um, over the last maybe twenty years, as as we've gone more to chat rooms and social media, it, 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 a lot of companies it seems like didn't know what to do with it. They they almost wanted to shut down that uh, your definition of community because it it shows too much of the dirty side and the inside and. It's it's like they they would have people talking about something in a chat room, and um, then they'd have other people from their company go in and try to combat what they were saying negatively about the company. But that's not community either, is it? No, that's that's control. That's yeah, because they we've all grown up in a world ever since Gutenberg of broadcast communication, where you'd fire the message out through the channel and hope that it hits its target and has the right impact. Social media is many-to-many, not one-to-many, and so you're not in control. And it's much more like, you know, hosting a dinner party than giving a lecture. And that was uncomfortable for many brands. Um, I I have found that the secret to being successful around a brand as a relationship and with social media and in creating community is this idea of social currency. And a social currency is the thing that is exchanged between people in a relationship. So money is a financial currency for the exchange of a transaction, and social currency is the thing that is exchanged between people for a relationship. So, for example, um, you know, the weather is a classic social currency. Nice day we're having, Mm -hmm. right? Or if you're in a bar, what are you drinking? That's kind of a social Mm. currency. In a Starbucks, the coffee is the social currency, Right. Right. And if you look in social media, every successful platform has its own version of a social currency. So on Facebook, it's a like or a tag. And they've added new currencies with the little emotional, you know, the emoji likes. On Twitter, it's different. A retweet is the social currency there. On Instagram, the picture itself is the social currency. And on Snapchat, it's like a filter in some ways is a social currency. So the key thing for a brand to do is to figure out what is the social currency of their brand, of their community. So Sephora noticed that this idea of a look, meaning a picture of your face made up, was the social currency that people were posting on Pinterest. Um, so they created a whole community for people to just share that. So the question for a, a brand is to say is, In the context of this relationship, 
what are the social currencies that either people already have or that we could create to almost be the central banker to mint that kind of currency. Hmm. And that's and that would be in the end, it's the currency, it's the draw for why people come to you. And it's exactly. it's what they use to interact and to it's how they would share your message. It's how they become a champion of you as well. Exactly. I'll give you a concrete example in an, in an area that you wouldn't think would be ripe for community. So this was a, um, another client of mine um, makes medical scrubs for nurses. Now, you would think that's about as kind of commodity as it gets. Right. But, you know, maybe there's a floral print, but how differentiated can you get? But they identified that their shared purpose is that um, nurses should be appreciated. And the social currency, therefore, is appreciation. And they have created a vibrant community all around this purpose of nurses being appreciated. And it's not just their appreciation, but more importantly, it's creating environments in which nurses can appreciate each other and doctors can appreciate nurses and patients can appreciate nurses and their friends and family can appreciate them. And so the currency of their community is appreciation. Hmm. That's cool. I mean, that takes and that talk of this is why you're the epiphany officer, right? Because that takes a shift, right? You got to you got to see what the real currency is, what the real connection is. That's right. And in my business, that was my kind of my epiphany was that the because I asked myself, well, wait a minute, what is the social currency of my business? Right. And yeah. I realized that it's epiphany. That's what I'm out for is for people to have epiphanies wherever that might be, and that's how I measure my success. When someone goes, huh, I never thought about it that way, or they have that aha moment, I know that I'm doing my job. That's cool. And um, it also, it, it, it probably, just the thinking of it takes it out of the commodity world, out of the almost the tangible world, and, and it creates more of a, I guess, a, a, um, what, a, a shared community or a shared right it's something that i can it uh it's almost like yeah like a money like a currency i guess it is it yeah. is it's a currency yeah. is the perfect word cuz then i can use it i can sell it i can share it i can pay for it i can give it away exactly i mean literally you know my background is in economics and literally a currency is a store of value and a medium of exchange and so what you're at work on is is how do you increase the value of that currency how do you make that appreciation be more meaningful, if you will. Um, if it's Nike and the shared purpose is uh, around awakening the athlete in all of us and the currency is about victory, right? That's the swoosh on the side of the shoe. The currency is victory. Then how do we make that victory more meaningful? And one of the things they did with their Nike Plus running community was to help people get better and get faster and share that so that normally, you know, so I broke seven-minute mile. Normally, I would be the only one who knew that. But in this running community, I can share that. So yeah. my time my time is a currency in that community, and Nike is enabling me to share it with others and make it more meaningful in the context of the relationship. And so that creates a whole new way of thinking about how you relate to your customers in this many-to-many -many world other than – can I do a better ad campaign to have them think better about me so that maybe someday I'll have consideration so they'll purchase my product? Yeah. That's just not enough anymore. That's cool. 
Yeah, no, I think that's powerful. It, it's a uh, it's a different world, and I think it's it's also it's a world where you can get so much more out of a brand than you used to. You don't just have to. It's not just the shirt anymore. It's 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 a sense of belonging. It's a sense of you know other people motivating you and a sense of community if they do it right. There's a huge opportunity here for brands to to create value in other ways, and I think people are looking for it. And uh, my experience has been that um, there's a huge untapped uh, demand for this, that people are looking for it. It's not just millennials. It's everybody is looking for um, greater meaning, greater purpose, greater relationship. Uh, and we know that we have through our, you know, through our smartphones and the things that we have as individuals, um, we have that. And now we're looking for it um, from others. You know, I like to say, you know, when's the last time you picked a restaurant or a hotel based on what the newspaper critic said or a book you bought in a bookstore? But it wasn't that long ago that that's how we made our decisions. Right. And so now we've got, you know, Yelp and TripAdvisor. These are like uh, barn raisings. You know, my, my parents live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and when the Amish need to build a barn, um, they just get the community together to build it. Hmm. Now, you don't hire an architect and a general contractor. The community builds it, and that's, in effect, what Yelp and TripAdvisor and Amazon with the reviews, these are like barn raisings. And that's the opportunity is to figure out in the, with the need that your customer has beyond just the product, how can you create the barn raising? I, I'd like to say, you know, uh, how, how do you market to a barn raising? Well, <laughs> you serve lunch, you know, and yeah. there are a lot of opportunities to serve lunch in whatever your industry is. That's great. I mean, it's Floyd. It's Floyd wasn't selling haircuts. He was selling a place to sit down and talk and relate uh, at the barbershop back in the Mayberry well, days, right? It was, and, and that's the Starbucks insight of third place. It's brilliant. I mean, the barbershop was a, was a third place. This idea of this was, you know, I, I talk about um, companies need to know their DNA, which is the founders, original founders' vision and values. Um, it, it's just as an aside on that. So this Pokemon Go phenomenon. Hmm. So what most people don't know is, is that the founder of Pokemon – grew up outside Tokyo and his hobby growing up was collecting insects. He would go through the parks and, and uh, public spaces looking for, for rare insects. And that's the spirit of Pokemon is collecting things in public spaces. That's the Pokemon go phenomenon. So the DNA is there. That's cool. And it's the same thing with Starbucks. So Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks was in Europe. And at that time, Starbucks ground coffee, they didn't serve it. And he had read this book called Third Place, and it's about this idea that, that societies need a third place between home and work. And he saw that every country in Europe had a third place where there, were there was a beverage involved. Hmm. So in, in England, it's the pub, beer. In Germany, it's the beer garden, beer again. In France and Italy, it's coffee around the cafe hmm. and coffee shop. And he thought, you know, America doesn't have a third place, although I, I love your point about in some ways, the hair salon and the barber shop is a, a bit of a third. But place. that's not a daily thing. Exactly, it's right? not a daily thing. Not on the way home from work. And so he thought, you know what? We can. You he loved coffee. We can create coffee as a as a social currency and third place uh, as a vision because at that time it was kind of Maxwell House out of a can. Right. And so it was that idea of the third place with that's coffee cool. as a currency 
that led to Starbucks success. Wow, that is so good. And it's also such a good paradigm. It's such a great shift you've made um, for us. If we want to be successful, we've got to somehow get the, the relationship juices flowing, the connection to us at a deeper level. Powerful stuff. Folks, go to um, shift.to, shift.to. It's a weird website, www.shift.to. That's Shift Thinking. That's Mark Bonchek's website. Great insights there, and you can get uh, more of his writing there as well as some of his thinking and, and uh, insights into brand as a relationship. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. How cool is that? Um, the, one of the shifts that it, the, the undercurrent of social media is this um, – there's not necessarily a hierarchy to it. I mean actually it's funny. Some of my pushback on Facebook is it feels like they control way too much of it because it used to be just a place where I could go aggregate my friends and talk to them. And now they're telling me how I can talk to them, how I can market them. If I want to pay more, I can communicate better with my with my community, and that might backfire. But what Mark Bonchek was teaching us is it's about that third place. For some of you, that's the church. You go to church. You go to your community events. For some, it's you know the schools. For some, it's sporting events, uh, maybe your son's soccer team. But we all need a third place where we can feel safe and connected, where there isn't a hierarchy controlling us, but we feel free and open to speak and to communicate. Powerful stuff. Isn't it crazy? And just right there in brands and social media. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy New Year. I mean, this is a big deal. Why? It's my first day on the show. The calendar changed. And it's a new year. It's 2017. It's your first 2017. It's a big deal. Okay. Someday if I write a check, I'll have to remember that. Mental note. (laughs) Now you're just making fun of me. (laughs) No, no, no. we're we're, We're laughing with you. I wrote a check the other day. Did you really? How'd that go? I can't recall if I put 2016 or 17. It doesn't matter. Mm. It might matter later. Today we're going to be talking about how to overcome life's difficulties by redirecting your thinking. It's about your stories. you got to be careful what story you tell about what happened or you kind of stay in the same rut. Mm. Mm. See? Like, for example, Penn State... They got to choose a really good story. Yeah. They lost in the last minute or so. Second. They lost on the field goal. Oh, the field goal, yeah. Yeah. That was just – but they played a killer game. I yeah, was they, so proud they of had Penn State. S- the Penn State in the Rose Bowl versus USC had seven possessions of the ball in a row where they scored touchdown. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. They scored 49 points. It's crazy. Does anybody play defense anymore? I don't think so. So this is the, the prison league. You're talking about State Penn? No. Oh, no, the Penn State. It's oh. a different – Okay, it's it. a team. It. So you're right. Penn the, St- some of them have been in the pen, the well, state pen. Penn State could say that we're horrible because we lost, 
or that we're good because we scored all these points and did it in this. I mean, the plays they were making were crazy. Oh, the it, running backs are huge. They, just all all the things that were happening were, were so positive. A lot of those guys are coming back. Battle of the quarterbacks. Right? It's a great sign for the future. So then the pro, then the thing is, are we bad because we lost, or are we good because no. look at how we competed? Oh, but they came. This they were they had been under suspension and fines and all of these things. Yeah, and. They none, came back. They, they they almost won the Rose Bowl. None of the coaches, none of the players involved in any no, of the things that, that have happened. years ago. But they were still suffering the fact that they couldn't yeah. recruit as much. Oh, they so almost had Do it. you look at it in a positive way or did we lose? That is and one that's thing. that's what the next guy is talking about is what story do you tell yourself? Watch your storytelling. Timothy Wilson will be replaying uh, an interview with him about – how you change your stories, you can change your life. We'll also talk with BYU Sports Nation, our buddies there, to find out what they think about uh, the bowl games. Did you guys talk to them yesterday about bowl games? We talked to them mostly about Lavelle Edwards. Oh, what a guy. What a and, guy. And, uh, yeah, they That's were cool. pretty serious about it. Well, today we're talking bowl games. Well, that'd be neat. It used to be Penn State reminded me a lot of BYU because, like, the Blues and this, these, right. these traditional coaches, Paterno and Lavelle, were always mentioned as, like, the longest winning streak coaches and everything. Right. <sighs> My favorite bowl game uh, is the, the one that involves 10 pins. That's bowling. Oh, sorry. Different bowl. Huh. My, hey, I love a good bowl of cereal. Actually, I don't. I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> Didn't you get uh, Ebola when you went to Costa Rica? Ebola? Yes. Yes, I did. No, Zika. He oh, Zika. Zika. That's right. Different, different thing. Plus today, um, we're going to give some advice to a bank robber. Mm. A lot of people having trouble writing notes when they're robbing a bank. We are going to give some advice you will not want to miss if you're planning on a bank robbery in the next little while can, and a trip to the hospital. Can you just send a text? No. Because then your, the number, then your number. Oh, good point. Get a, get a burner phone. They sell them at the grocery store. No. no? Don't. Don't. <laughs> don't. Yeah, do that. You can, that's that's. They're actually, always at 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah. Just there in the bubble pack. And always make it. sure that you break your flip phone burner phone right you have to break it in half so that they can't track you and then, and then they, it becomes untraceable and then stomp it on with your yeah. foot yeah because that's what they do on tv yeah and throw it in the trash because they won't look in the trash no one's going to look in the trash do you want to go in there it's gross we will uh we'll get to that giving you some bank robbery uh tips we're pretty good at this. We really are, and I think we're helping. Collectively, a, I think we've watched yeah. enough TV that we can we can pull off a perfect crime. Yeah, and yet these people continue to commit these crimes, so they're obviously not listening. No, uh, apparently we haven't reached that segment of the audience yet. That's why we keep pegging it, trying to hit it. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we need to be aware of? With all of the trouble that uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan had in the last year when it came to when he took the job as House Speaker and he was going to be voted out, people were talking about he's going to have to retire because we just don't have any faith in this guy anymore. Yeah. House Speaker Paul Ryan won re-election Tuesday with 239 votes, securing his spot as leader of the 115th Congress. Woo. In a formal vote on uh, Congress's opening day, Ryan earned the support of every Republican except Representative Tom Massey of Kentucky, who voted for Representative Daniel Webster of 
Florida. No word on who Webster voted for. <laughs> the, or the nearly unanimous vote marks a striking move towards party unity as several Republicans deflect, uh, defected when Ryan was first elected speaker in 2015. Representative Nancy Pelosi was reelected as minority leader, winning the support of most hmm. Democrats. She had some issues, you know, leadership, Go losing Nancy. the presidency, sure. most of the Stuff states. Like uh, Ford announced Tuesday that it's canceled its plans to build a $1.6 billion plant in Mexico. Instead, the second largest American automaker will invest $700 million in a plant in Flat Rock, Michigan, adding 700 jobs. Ford CEO, Ford CEO Mark Fields made the point to clarify Ford did not cut a deal with President-elect Donald Trump, but rather did it for our business However, Fields did seemingly give a nod to Trump's pro-business interest when explaining why Ford had its change of heart, saying our announcement today are really a vote for confidence in the economy. He's, and if some of those changes that President Trump says could happen, that might make it more pro-business. And then Trump accused GM of making certain cars in Mexico. They said, no, they're actually made in Michigan. Yeah, it's a little mistake. There's some hatchbacks that are made in Mexico that we ship overseas, but the ones that are sold in the U.S. are basically he, made What here. he needs is Trump needs a briefing. <clears throat> yeah. He's not taking his briefing anymore. Credit reporting agency Equifax and TransUnion have been hit with a $23 million in fines after allegedly deceiving customers. Mm. The U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said the agencies tricked consumers into thinking their services were much cheaper than they actually were, with services advertised for only $1, turning out to cost actually $200 a year. Wow. That's kind of a difference in price there. TransUnion has been ordered to pay $13 13 million back to customers as well as a three million dollar fine equifax is expected to repay 3.8 million to consumers and a 2.5 million dollar fine the companies will also have to change their marketing to uh practices to obtain consent for any payments that kick in after free trial periods there you go the hidden small print always read the small print and finally according to nielsen music there has been an enormous sales surge of george michael's music since the singer's tragic death on december 25th the week ending december 29th sales of michael's music increased 2678 percent with about 477,000 albums and songs sold the previous week according to nielsen that number was 17,000 wow three of michael's solo albums and wham's 1984 album make it big Return to the Billboard's two ta- or the Billboard 200 chart as well. That is crazy. Which is common. Well, I mean, it's just so sad that you get all this, you know, this influx of money when you're dead. Yes. The jitter bug. Oh, did he did did he sing this one? I did not know that. Yeah. There you go. He's a talent. This is when he was in Wham. 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 Wow. Smack! There you go. Well, good job. A lot of people. You guys talked about this. I know uh, yesterday. A lot of people passed away. It was a it was a traumatic end of the year for who? For a lot of these people that are dying and their families and maybe close friends that they know. And the Star Wars franchise that and just made a hundred million dollars on the death of their star and all the people with their lightsabers in disneyland with their tributes to a person they never met yes and absolutely. The, the singing in the rain franchise right wasn't it come again didn't they have like five of those films it's like singing in the rain singing in the desert oh i don't oh yeah singing singing in the shower yeah singing in the swamp that was mm. dancing in the dunes then there was the fifth one clearing the swamp draining the swamp draining, draining the swamp, the swamp sorry. which i don't think that's been filmed yet no it's ongoing 
I think they're rewriting the script. They're going to have to use CGI Debbie Reynolds for that one. <laughs> As we go. Um, man, or a hologram. I got to tell you this one, guys, um, and I need your help. Okay. Because we've talked a lot about the fact that people can't spell anymore because they always have spell check. They have all of these tools and devices. So when a bank robber goes in to write a note, they always misspell it, and it creates problems, right? In fact, we've even had stories where the Association of Bank Tellers won't even mm. – they're unwilling to participate in a bank robbery if you can't at least spell it right. Yeah. Well, here's some advice. Um, a suspect signed himself out of the Chester County Drug and Alcohol Rehab mm. Center. Signed himself out. And when you sign yourself out, I guess they give you a uh, – Receipt like a like a form that you're okay. signed out probably like your it's like your hall pass yeah and then he took his hall pass and went to the Malvern Bank mm. where he then made off with five thousand dollars in cash wow but he wrote his note his demand note on his discharge papers mm. oh mm. so Blasted. they were able to see what his name was. Yeah. Where he came from. His diagnosis, how long he was in rehab. It's always the little details that'll trip you up. So, rule? Yes. Get some stationery. Mm. No, no, because it has your name on it. Well, Just you, get a notepad. When get you, it, you can get your initials on it. When you walk into a bank, yeah. they have a, like a transaction ticket they kind of like you to fill out before you go to the window. Just use theirs. Just flip it over and write yeah. your note on the back. Mm-hmm. And make it simple. Because then when you get to the teller, they look at it like it's a transaction ticket, but it's blank. They flip it over and surprise, robbery. Yeah. That's a great idea. It's a deposit sheet. Just write down how much you want to take out. Yeah. There you go. By the way, his name Jamal Goodwin, 25. A uh, little rule for him as well. Don't leave your gym bag in the taxi oh. that brought you to the... to the. Uh, so we're talking multiple mistakes mm-hmm. here. Wow. Because uh, in his gym bag, he also had left his wallet, his driver's license, and an identification card. Mm. And his stinky socks. And his so socks. They, they brought in sweat- the dogs, yeah. and they were able to identify him by his scent. Yeah. Also, by the way, in the car were two sweatshirts a bank teller said that the robber was wearing. So he actually left his clothes after the robbery in the bag. Wow. He had a bad day. Yeah. I think he wanted to get caught. Maybe that's it. It sounds like a cry for help. Yeah. Is that a cry for help? Sort of. I mean, it sounds like it. Totally yeah. does. Also, um, this one you just won't believe. The New Mexico Department of Health. What's the health department for? To keep like society healthy. To keep make the... sure you don't get sick. Yeah. That you, you know, that you, that the restaurants you go to don't make you sick. There you go. Stuff like that. The New Mexico Department of Health says dozens of its employees became sick after its holiday party. Uh oh. Yeah. It's the guac. Yeah. About 70 staff members say they had gastrointestinal issues after a luncheon last week. Wow. Spokesman says more than 200 employees attended the catered luncheon. Mm. So it wasn't them, obviously. No. It was those 70 people obviously had another issue. Um, Health Secretary Lynn Gallagher said that investigators have not identified a specific contaminated food. She told her staff that the outbreak appears likely to have been caused by bacteria that can cause foodborne illnesses. Hmm. The health department is awaiting the results of a laboratory test. So From their own holiday party. Yeah. That they poisoned themselves. So 70, somehow. a third roughly, of their 200 employees were sick at their own party. Mm. But they're not sure what it was, but it was probably some bacteria that caused a foodborne illness. That is the soundtrack, by the way, to 70 people vomiting. Since wow. we don't want to do the sound effects that is really of 70 the name people of that vomiting. Soundtrack. I thought that was uh, some opera. Well, well it, more if you were going to put music 
to to the event. Okay, good. I think it's called O four two. He did it again. You can't make that sound. That we've, people we've are sensitive. That we've, makes people. It's a trigger. Like get all, yeah. Beclumped. Well, we exactly. We we <laughs> hope the New Mexico Department of Health staff members are okay. We we're here for you, and we hope that you can figure it out. And if you can't, send your samples to another state. See if they can help. That's why you got to be careful with a company party. Be careful. What samples are you talking about? Like the the shrimp samples yeah, or the got the shrimp? You got to send the guac samples. You're talking about the specimen sample? No, the, the samples from the food to figure out what you know which of these had E. coli or some mm. other wow. some other bacteria. Okay. Um, any other headlines? Anything we need to worry about? There's a rumor out that Apple, on their next uh, software update, they're going to include something called theater mode. Oh, boy. You have airplane mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that turns off your Wi-Fi and all connected signals, so it doesn't mess with the airplane, even though that stuff doesn't actually mess with the airplane. It kind of keeps the stewardesses yeah. happy. Um, uh, theater mode will automatically, with one button, mute your phone. And uh, stop any uh, – it'll kill system sounds, the haptic feedback, the vibration, because mm. even that's pretty loud right. in, a, in a theater. Uh, blocking incoming calls, messages, reduce initial screen brightness during movies. So it just – it basically locks your phone down. So it keeps it keeps you connected. It just locks off all the – turns off all the alarms. Yeah, all the, the alerts. Warning. Some of the uh, – uh, movie theaters actually have apps that will do this for you also. But I think they, they ought to have church it. mode. They ought to have funeral mode. There's a lot of modes we're missing. A lot of places we just can just shut your phone down. Wait, so this – this what company was this again? Apple. Apple. You want one more? Another or, Apple sound? Or are we out of time? Um, we probably are out of time. Okay. I got, I got more. But, but I love Apple. Don't get me wrong. I understand. I miss my Apple. How many of these does he have? They're just it's the same one. Really? Yeah. There are subtle differences. Yeah. It's I I cuz I swear I heard a Red Delicious and then I heard a, a Granny Apple. What do they call it? Yeah. That was a Red Delicious. When we come back, we'll be talking with Timothy Wilson uh, about how to overcome life's difficulties by redirecting your thinking, retelling your story. It's a it's an interview we did earlier in the year or actually earlier last year. <laughs> but great insight about how to change your world by simply seeing it differently. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Change my way of thinking. myself a different center room. Change my way of thinking. Welcome back, friends. Little Bob Dylan for you. Change my way of thinking. And uh, it really works. You know, if you really want to get through the depression, overcome the traumas of life, work out family problems, make difficult decisions, we may have an answer for you that, uh, that, that possibly you haven't thought of. It, it might simply be you could go to a self-help video or whatever, try to change it that way, get over your pain. But today, renowned psychologist uh, Dr. Timothy Wilson joins us to discuss his book, Redirect Changing the stories we live by, and he's here to teach us how to begin overcoming some of these difficulties by working on the stories we tell and how we think about it. And we appreciate you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Talk to us about uh, changing, you know, the way your stories 
how you live by your stories. What do you mean by our stories? Well, I think you know one reason people uh, can be unhappy or get themselves into trouble is their thinking patterns, the kinds of stories they've developed that about themselves and and their environment that might be too pessimistic or they just kind of get stuck in a negative uh, thinking pattern. And, uh, you know, sometimes this becomes really serious and and, um, needs a big intervention like psychotherapy, and and I think that's great for people who who need it. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like taking our car into the shop. Sometimes it needs a major overhaul, and sometimes we just need a little tune-up. And and, uh, psychologists have come up with these other techniques that are more of the tune-up variety. (laughs) Right, and I guess this could be any thought. Right. One thought. Give uh, give me an example of a thought that just or, or a story that I keep telling myself that that really impacts me psychologically. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a college professor, so I'll, I'll give a student uh, an example of of college students. Yeah. That uh, you know, imagine a, a first year college student. They're they've taken their first test and uh, they did really well in high school, but suddenly they get a bad grade and and it's that first calculus test or whatever. And uh, a real key as to what happens next is what story that student tells him or herself about why they got that bad grade. So on the one hand, the student might say, oh, man, this, this confirms my worst fears. You know, I just, I'm not cut out for college. I, I'm one of those admissions errors. I shouldn't be here. And that's going to have some really bad effects down the road. The, the story itself will lead to giving up and not studying for the next test. Right. You know, but what if the student says instead, um, gosh, this is a wake-up call. I need to learn better study habits. I should go see the professor. You know, that's a much more um, adaptive story that can lead to better outcomes down the road. And this could be anything. We could carry it in life, That the story that I'm not smart. Um, I, I told a story – or I. I came across a story that I created early in life that I don't do math. Yeah. And even but the funny thing was the data showed that I did. And I yeah. and I did yeah. it fast and I did it well, but I didn't do it like other people or I didn't do it, you know, at a high enough level that it impacted me. That's a great example, Matt, and and I think it's a very common one. You know, it's always struck me as to why many of us are prone to conclude that about ourselves. I mean, how many people have you heard say, you know, I'm just not a word person? Right. Uh, you know, we don't say that. We say, well, I need to work on my skills. And, um, you know, just that very explanation or that very label we give ourselves can be really damaging. Why do we do it? Why do we tell these stories um, and maybe some of them we don't tell. Some of them maybe have been told to us. Well, exactly. And some of them the culture teaches us. There are all sorts of stereotypes out there, like that women can't do math or you know this particular group isn't smart. And it's easy for us to have that get under our skin if we if we grow up in a culture. Um, you know, they can be rooted in our family background and in um, in the way our parents uh, raised us. Uh, but I think a common misconception is that they can't be changed, that because they are perhaps rooted in, in our upbringing, that, that uh, they're indelible. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think with a little work, they, they can be changed. Um, in fact, my, my, my story of not doing math even became a story of my family. We aren't math people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So then it was like institutionalized to my family. Um, but I guess... Part part of this is if I buy the story, if I never look at the story I tell, then I'm stuck in it. 
Yes, yes, uh, and I think that's that's right. And and uh, and you know, sometimes we even have to dig a little deep to to see what the story is. Sometimes it's just basic assumptions we're making that we've never really questioned and or made explicit, and and just kind of um, you know digging in there a little bit to see what our story is, is is a start. Yeah, I always thought that a story was basically a thought formalized. Is, is, is that is that an inappropriate way to look at? Like yeah, it's because it's um, if we keep telling well, the same you know, story, we keep telling the same thought. Sure. I mean, if by formalized you mean you know we repeat it to ourselves a lot, yeah. um, it's kind of our default that we go to when something happens to us. Then then sure. But it's thinking, isn't it? And I guess this is all then about learning how to rethink your thinking. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, there, there's been some cool techniques developed. Um, some are delivered by um, the people around us. So, you know, one reason I bring up the college student example is because we did a study several years ago where we tried to change those stories in, in students who were struggling. And and it was really simple. We, we brought in um, students uh, who were in their first year of college and not doing so well. And we simply gave them the message that, you know, lots of people struggle at first. Uh, they watched some videotaped interviews of older students who said, yeah, you know, I, I really got some bad grades my first semester, but I'm doing just fine now. Hmm. And, you know, that little message that it isn't just me, it's it's maybe the situation and that I, and I can deal with it, um, had a pretty dramatic effect. The, the people who got that message compared to a group that didn't um, had better grades a year after our studies. So... Sometimes it doesn't take much to just nudge people into a better way of thinking about their situation. So I guess I guess one – what I heard there was being more specific. So it's a specific versus a general statement. I, I didn't do so well on this test versus – I'm oh, my heavens, I'm not doing well at all. Yes. No, that's really a, a good point that um, – you know, it's easy for us to jump to the general conclusion sometimes and important to say, no, this is one bad grade in one context and let's see what we can do to make it better. Yeah. What's another technique that we can use to, to strengthen our story? Well, um, there's a phrase that we psychologists like called do good, be good. And the idea is that sometimes if you want to change what's inside your head, actually changing your outward behavior first is a good first step. So um, if we want to be more helpful people, then doing some volunteer work. Or if we want to improve a relationship, um, acting in a nicer way towards our partners. Um, the, you know, this isn't going to cause dramatic change immediately, but but just changing what we do, often our stories follow from that. Uh, there's, there's a famous study that was done with high school students um, that actually got them to engage in volunteer work in their communities for a year. And the students got to change, got to choose um, you know, whether they worked in a daycare center or an old folks home or whatever. And it was fascinating. You know, just that volunteer work changed their views of themselves. They began to see themselves as more engaged in their community, as as people who care about others. And the ones who were in that program um, got better grades. Um, the girls in the program were less likely to get pregnant. It was actually a very mm. good anti-pregnancy program. <laughs> interesting. Isn't that interesting? And it's um, we've heard – do you know who Amy Cuddy is? Yes. And yes. so, I mean, Amy Cuddy talks a lot about just your just, you know, assuming the Superman pose or 
the Wonder Woman pose, like whatever the pose is, just your body changing and taking a different position changes maybe the story you would tell. Yes, yes. I mean, we, uh, we, we're very good observers of ourselves, and, and we're, we're you know, not necessarily consciously, but we're, we're seeing what we're doing and making note of it all the time. And you know, what position our body is in or what we're actually doing is, is a key to changing those stories. But, you know, there are other ways, too. And, and there's, there's a variety of writing exercises that have been developed that can be very helpful if people, you know, there's some kind of problem that's been preying on us. We haven't been able to get over some episode in our life. Just taking out a piece of paper and writing about it, say, for 10 minutes uh, a night, three or four nights in a row, and trying to be really open about our feelings. Um, it's interesting. It's not easy to do. When, when you ask people to do that, they often, um, you know, they're writing often about fairly traumatic things, and, mm-hmm. and um, it's hard. But if we can make ourselves do it, it leads to story change. People begin to view the event differently, maybe come up with a different explanation um, in ways that allows them to move on. And this is research by a psychologist named James Pennebaker that's been replicated dozens of times and is, is really, really helpful. I guess part of that is because you are, you are the author. Yeah. You might put yourself in the role of the author. I'm writing it, but I might also see that I could write it another way. Yes, yes. In fact, some you know some recent studies show that one way to kind of kickstart that is to write from a third-person perspective. So try to um, uh, imagine you're someone else looking at your situation and how an outside observer would see it. It it kind of makes us a little more objective hmm. and maybe just sees ourselves, you know, puts it in a different light that, that can be helpful. Oh, that I love that. Um, okay, we've got to take a break. We. We've got so much to talk about. We're speaking again with Timothy Wilson, who is the author of the book, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. And he's uh, also a professor at uh, the University of Virginia, I believe, and is here to walk us through the stories we tell, some tools to help us redirect those thoughts, those stories, and change the life uh, that we're living. Stick with us, folks. More when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Timothy Wilson. He is uh, walking us through his book, Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By, and is trying uh, his darndest to help us understand how we can change our thinking via our storytelling. Um, it really is, I guess, how we how we share this concept, this identity of who we are. We we all have a story inside of us, and a lot of times, apparently, Dr. Wilson, the story is not necessarily accurate. Well, um, I would say that it's it just doesn't serve us well. That that regardless of how accurate it is, it can be self defeating if if it leads us to be too pessimistic about ourselves or. Uh, as we were saying, to label ourselves as not a math person when, in fact, we, we could do quite well. Right. And and I, I guess uh, framing it in an absolute or a, that, or a generalization, I guess, the, the deal with it is, is it's, um, 
it ends up then creating a negative feeling. Is that what happens? The, the stories then, if they're not complete, they end up creating kind of – they overwhelm us. Is that what happens? Well, that can lead to self-defeating patterns of behavior. So, you know, if I label myself as, as not a math person, um, I'm not going to try as hard. I'm, I'm not going to sign up for, for more difficult math courses. Um, you know, I, I hit a difficult problem in my homework. I'm more apt to give up. Um, where, and, and so that will confirm my original uh, conception of myself. Hmm. Um, you know, work by Carol Dweck talks about these ideas of, about our own intelligence. That some people have what she calls a fixed mindset, the idea that intelligence is a thing we we're born with and there's a certain amount of it in our tank, sort of like gas in a car, and, uh, you know, we have it or we don't. And that can be really unhealthy because a lot of times in life, things, it's effort and perseverance that matter. And if you have the fixed mindset, if, if things go wrong, you know, you're having trouble with that math problem, the logical conclusion is, oh, I guess I, I don't have it, yeah. uh, so, so why try? Uh, so she advocates what she calls a growth mindset, which is the idea that the brain's like a muscle and, and we need to exercise it and it gets stronger and and uh, seeking the right kind of help and, and trying hard is, is the way to accomplish things, not just by assuming we're smart or not. Well, I guess that's every thought we have could could impact us in some way or another. Just the thought like a growth mindset that this, you know, life should be hard that yeah. versus life should be easy. Just there's so many assumptions we make and a lot of them we never, ever evaluate. No, it's true. And, and, you know, I think it's also true of our relationships that sometimes we go into marriage, say, with the idea that, um, you know, this is going to be perfect. I found the one and, and it's a rosy future from here on in. And and that's hardly ever true. You right. know, any any marriage has bumps and, and getting used to each other. And, and uh, <laughs> I was listening to an interview recently of a fellow who's written a book about this, and he said on on his 10th wedding anniversary, his wife dressed all in black, and he asked her why, and he, she said, I'm having a funeral for all my hopes that have died. <laughs> and, but, but they're still married. And, you know, and I, I think it's you know, realizing that marriage takes some work like anything else is, is, is a healthy way to approach it. Is there – at what point can I influence and help other people evaluate their – thinking and their storytelling, I guess, without becoming intrusive? Well, certainly as parents, we can. I, I think one of our, our job as parents is to shape our kids' stories and and to make sure they're, or to try our best to, that they don't develop these fixed mindsets about themselves, that they they think they, they can accomplish things uh, more through effort and, and less with just these fixed abilities. Um, not that fixed abilities don't matter, of course. Not all of us can be major league baseball players or, you know, in the Olympics. But, but a lot of times we have more potential than, than we realize. Um, and I think in relationships, um, uh, not jumping to conclusions about each other. And, and um, um, you know, there's one study that found that just asking married couples to write about their conflicts, again, from a third-person perspective, to think about how an outside person might view their conflicts um, was very helpful. It allows them to be a little more rational about 
what was going on and and increase their satisfaction with their with their marriage. Hmm. I see that uh, I coach couples on their communication, and that's what we have them do. We don't have them write it out. We have them try to see it as an outside party and just point out the data versus interpretation of the conversation. And it's fascinating when they start looking at it as an outsider and just uh-huh. the, and the patterns of it. Yeah, that's great. It becomes that's less great. offensive, right? Because it's, oh, look what we are doing. Look what, look what is happening there, I mean, versus the you said and he said and she said. Right. And um, As we wrap this up, what, what advice would you give us uh, to begin? If, if we wanted to immediately like, be able to take this home today and, and start redirecting some of our thinking, what, what's one activity I could do tonight? Well, I'll, I'll suggest two. One is yeah. the writing exercise. So, you know, take out that piece of paper and um, write about some area of your life that you're unhappy with. Um, maybe from that third-person perspective of of uh, how an outside observer would view the situation. And do that maybe a couple of nights in a row and just see if it leads to a, a new interpretation that works better for you. Hmm. Um, but the other is that do good, do good is, you know, often the best way to start is to change our behavior a little bits at a time, um, doing that volunteer work, being, being nicer to someone we're having conflict with and good things can, can result from that. And just and get started. Don't, you don't have to wait. Right. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you. Great insights. Dr. Timothy Wilson, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Matt. I appreciate it. You bet. The book is Redirect. Changing the Stories We Live By. Go check it out. It's a wonderful read and a great insight into how to, I think, take your life back. Become the author of your life again. Powerful insight. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's that time of the show when we get to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, who will be starting their show at the top of the hour and find out what's coming up uh, there. Gentlemen, are you there? Spencer, Jeremy? Hello, gentlemen. Hey, can you hear us now? Oh, we could hear you before, talking about a monkey. What were we talking about? I think you were talking about some monkey. No, was it Goose Kalunky? Goose Kalunky, yes. Oh, Goose Kalunky? (laughs) What's heard that combo? What's what's Goose Kalunky? Goose Kalunky is a person. Oh, yes. really? Uh-huh. He went to uh, Orm High, played baseball at Utah Valley. He's, <laughs> yep. he's one of the guys. So before BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and I interacted in the BYU communications program, broadcast journalism. But also, we both worked at iProvo, oh. uh, which was a local cable access. iProvo. Our, our little Wayne's World It was show. our Wayne's World. We yeah. did uh, live games, high oh, cool. school of Provo and Timfew, and then we had a show. Called Sports Valley. Yeah, Sports Valley. Yeah. Uh, Spencer hosted it. I was on it. Spencer left. I hosted it with some other cats. Cool. Um, but it was really fun. So Goose Galunky was one of our guys because we were talking about the Chicago Cubs from 88 <laughs> randomly, and Goose Gossage came up. So oh, I thought of Goose Galunky. Goose Gossage, Goose Galunky. I thought yeah. they were related. I guess not. Yeah. These are the types of things that we talk about. <laughs> now you know. Like, yeah. When the filter's off, uh-huh. when we're not on the air, like we still talk about stuff. Before like that this. was Harry Carey impersonation. Yes, Harry <laughs> Carey uh, impersonations of Will Ferrell doing Harry Carey. Do you, do you do you guys <laughs> want to throw one of those out? Yes, listen to this. <laughs> who's hey? Who's on the show today, Spencer? Uh, Mackenzie Pulsifer will join us, Jerob. 
If the moon was made of cheese, would you eat it? <laughs> so let me get that straight. That's Dawson Will Ferrell. I mean, that's Will Ferrell doing Harry doing Carey. Harry Carey. Yeah, that Beach sounds. aged. <laughs> that sounds can just like it. Well, I can because it's an impersonation, right? Oh, okay. Of course you can. It was a, yeah. If uh, my Harry Carey has too much Bill Cosby in it, let's hear that. That'd be fun. The two one to Dawson. <laughs> A single up the middle. <laughs> Say pudding pop. Add, add pudding pop in that. And you put the bullet in the furnace and then the gun. <laughs> See, that's good. The oh. Temple Owls are going to win the title. Hey, let's do this more often. What We're going to just drop in on your conversations more often without telling you. Yeah. And then we can, yeah. then we'll get this good content. Yeah, to all of your listeners out there, Matt, heaven Good bless content. you for putting up with us oh, on a yeah. daily basis That's for what my... the seven to nine minutes that we totally. join the program. In fact, I'm renegotiating my contract on that very point right now. <laughs> I need to be paid more oh, to yeah. put up with those clowns. These guys are crazy. <laughs> hey, um, okay, so did you see Did you see the, the chest of drawers video of the kids pulling the chest of drawers down? No. What? Oh. What happened? You've got to see it. Okay. Just look up uh, superhero two-year-old saves his twin brother chest really? of drawers. So what happened? These kids were playing up in their bedroom. Mom and dad no, weren't around. And the kids pulled the drawers out of their chest of drawers. One of them was jumping or like laying in the drawer. I don't know what he was doing. He was playing in the drawer. And the whole chest of drawers tipped over. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Totally looked horrible at first. And um, then you see the, the other twin doing everything he can to get the brother out. But it reminded me of you two. Um because one was trapped under the drawers. Nobody was harmed. The kids were scared. But this little kid, the, the other twin, two-year-old, was trying to lift it. He couldn't lift it. He was trying to pull his we're brother. We're watching it right now. Okay, watch it. It's yeah, kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. Now, Crazy, right? As you're watching it, because then the, the, the child, the two, other two-year-old, was hailed as a hero because he ended up moving the, the thing and got the little brother out. It was yeah. kind of cute. But what people fail to realize is that child also stood on top of the chest of drawers um, <laughs> and ignored his brother for a few minutes while he was playing <laughs> with something else. Okay, so I want to know which one of you would be the hero and which one of you would be the one stuck under the chest of drawers if you two were the twins. Mm. I think that... I'd like to think that both of us would take the role of wanting to push the chest of drawers off of the Oh, other. I think you would. But which one of you would actually sit on the chest of drawers while the other one is trapped underneath? And then push the chest of yeah. drawers off? <laughs> yeah. Probably me. That's <laughs> probably Jerem. That's probably Jerem. I'd be like, Spencer is under the chest of drawers. <laughs> bouncing and on I'm it. sitting on it. And it's so fun. Isn't that crazy? That, that's, a, that's a nationwide viral story now. It, right funny. out of Orem, Utah. And the parents didn't oh, have Oh, that was in Orem. Uh-huh. And they didn't have to share it, but they wanted to share it to tell everybody, go secure your... Go secure your chest of drawers. I was just where thinking about parents? that. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. That's um, what everyone was saying. Where were the parents? And they, they actually were in the home, but they didn't hear any of it. So obviously they were watching Sports Nation, BYU Sports Nation. It's our fault. Yeah. It's always, <laughs> they were watching Sports Nation. It's always <laughs> our fault, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> it always comes down to you two. Hey, and uh, the twins. And the twins. Okay, here, here's, here's a crazy oh. sports question for you, and then you can tell me what's on your show. Okay. Really, is it Alabama, Clemson, is that are those the two best teams? Really? Yes. Okay. One hundred percent. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, cl- who's, g- from last year. who's gonna win it? Here, okay. it's hard. To, it, oh. 
Clemson me- is like the only team that can hang with Alabama, I think. Yeah, they're cool. Clemson so is good enough on offense to score on Alabama's defense. It's just a question of how much. And Alabama has some weird situations going on with the offensive coordinator. Did you hear about this? Lane no. Kiffin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lane's gone. Is gone a week before Sark the national championship. Is going Their to- play caller for 14 games. Gone. Is gone. And now former BYU quarterback Steve Sarkisian. That's who huge. has been an offensive analyst. That's mm-hmm. a made up position. Yeah, made by up. By the way. Yeah. It's not a real thing. It's a made up position. Yeah. Is going to be the play caller. That's crazy. For the national championship. championship. Pretty crazy. How about that? It seems like kind of a weird thing to do the last week. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird is an understatement. Because, I mean, like we can't wait one more week? Come on. Yeah. It's a national championship. So I wonder how much that will affect the Alabama offense, which has been at times good, but for the most part, just pretty average. It's the defense that has yeah. destroyed people. Let's yeah. just say the Alabama defense has 11, uh, they have 11 touchdowns. touchdowns oh, which is I great. know. It's I think crazy. the BYU offense had 13 or 14 oh, touchdowns this year. It's just, just like not crazy. fair. It's not fair. Well, we'll see. So, yeah, okay, I, that's I'm cool. intrigued by okay. the matchup because of all of the uh, – yeah, the buildup with I uh, knew. the change in offensive coordinator and then the rematch, and it's, it's going to be fun. I knew you'd know. I know. Go you guys are pros. Okay, yeah, what's on your yes. show today? I don't know. I'm just thinking about Alabama Clemson now. <laughs> uh, we've got a good show. Uh, as always, we will uh, continue to remember Lavelle Edwards, Robbie Bosco, the national championship game-winning quarterback, will join us in Studio B to talk about the former coach. As well as we preview tomorrow's basketball showdown between BYU and St. Mary's. Oh, big game. The Gales are a top 20 team. Mm. And BYU, really, a lot of these guys are going to face the first awfully hostile environment that they have played in. Because St. Mary's will sell out. They're a good team. It's a small gym. How are the young guys going to handle that? And uh, who's going to be the biggest impact player in tomorrow's game? Braden Shaw from the team will join us in the studio as well, uh, as well as Mackenzie Pulsifer from the women's basketball team. They have a big game with uh, St. Mary's as well tomorrow night. Oh, that's great. Great show, gentlemen. We like to think so. You amaze me. And you do impersonations. Okay, go make your money. Thanks for being with us. And uh, remember who you are and stay strong. Dasa the second. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Will. Or, yeah. Yeah, as well. Good stuff. Those guys, they're like robots. They can just go. Once you just plug them in, they're just a robot and they go. Oh, I thought you said robots. Robots. Okay. Yeah. Are you a snorer? Jeffrey Lamar Simpson, do you snore? Not my middle name. Um, I do, according to my wife, I still maintain that I don't. Yeah. According to my wife and video footage... I apparently do. Hmm. But I don't believe any of it because you can do anything with video now. You know, we had a guest yesterday that was talking about proper breathing, and she said the best way to sleep is on your side. That's a great point. On your side. And then to change positions, change from side to side a couple of times throughout the night. Oh, that's good because that's how I sleep. My wife thinks when I'm snoring, the best way to sleep is with a pillow over my head and someone sitting on it. Or in a different room altogether. Yeah. According, though, to this uh, this smart bed, there, there's a company releasing a smart bed now that can actually adjust your sleeping while you're sleeping. If it senses snoring, it will adjust the bed to make it so you don't snore anymore. Mm. 
I thought yeah, you were going to say it gives you like a little shock or no. something to wake you up. <laughs> what the? It's an experience many of us are all too familiar with being rudely woken by heavy snoring. But now this bed will adjust. It's called the 360-degree smart bed. And once it detects snoring, it starts to raise the sleeper's head by a few degrees to clear the airwaves. And the airwaves, and then it um, makes it so that they can breathe easier so they don't snore. And then it, they just keep adjusting it until you quit snoring or eventually it just starts slamming and folding up like a little taco and yeah. beating you till you stop. Yeah. It's called the 360-degree bed. Hmm. Sounds like a piece of heaven for those that don't snore. As you know, we always like to end the, story, the show with a hero story. Today's hero, UPS driver, helps free a, a captive woman. Listen to this out of CNN, off of the CNN feed. A UPS driver who spotted, uh, uh, called 911, scrawled on a package helped police free a woman who had been held captive in her own home and sexually assaulted, authorities said. He was a huge help. Franklin County Sheriff's Department said the driver called police after making a scheduled stop to pick up a package at the home in Robertsville, uh, Missouri. A SWAT team sent to the house in response to the call took 33-year-old James Tyler Jordan into custody, police said. Jordan's wife told authorities that her husband had refused to let her leave and assaulted her. Court documents state Jordan allegedly had her talk with the driver while standing behind her with a gun. Somehow she managed to write her plea for help on the package, according to the documents. And luckily, the UPS driver was smart enough to pick up the signal. Also in the home, a three-year-old child was in the home uh, during the woman's ordeal as well. UPS praised its employee uh, role in in Jordan's arrest. We are grateful this UPS driver, with more than a decade of service, followed protocol when he saw a customer in distress and immediately called 911. So UPS, man. They're there to help you any way they can. What a cool story. He is the, or she, that driver is the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. That's sometimes all people need is just that you pay attention to the little the little information they're giving you. There's a lot of information there. That's the show, my friends. We'll be back tomorrow with more ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one and let's look after each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.